do 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 humming music while Bob's away do 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 let's see if he listens back <coughs> all right they said go ahead and do one more match okay Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by an inexplicably pre-taped Alec Pridgen in a race car driver outfit. It's good to see you. I assume it's uh, what day of the week it is when I recorded this, but hopefully it's the right one. (laughs) How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's going alright. It's going alright. It's always good to get on with you and talk some wrestling for a while. Absolutely. Tonight, we're covering Wrestle War 91, War Games. We want you. It's a little, a little late for that request. I mean, it's been, what, 29 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe they're assuming that you'll invent a time machine. Well, that's a pretty good guess. Wrestle War 91 was held on February 24th, 1991 at the Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix, Arizona, in front of 6,800 fans, that's 4,300 paid, and earned 155,000 pay-per-view buys. That's less than Starcade 90, 175,000, but more than Starcade 91, 140,000. And Wrestle War 91 actually earns the most pay-per-view buys of any WCW pay-per-view for 1991. Wow. Not a great year for the numbers, but not the worst year either. Although, looking back to when we did Starcade 90 and they ran the promo for this show, it really made John want to see it, so I guess that worked. Yeah, yeah, definitely did. There was one dark match before the show. We had Eddie Guerrero and Ultraman versus Huichol and Rudy Boy. I'm not sure that I said Huichol correctly, but we'll go with that. Ultraman, incidentally, was actually Ultraman 2, the successor to the original Ultraman, and yes, the gimmick was apparently patterned after the Japanese superhero show of the same name, which I've never actually watched, but it had some pretty awesome-looking action figures and a very much not-awesome SNES game. I was going to say, yeah, you ha- I know you have a game with them, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not very good. <laughs> some thrift store I was at, because I always buy motion thrift stores, I bought, like, old thing Ultraman like the show, but it was missing like one of the discs. So I have one random disc of episodes like 7 through 12 of the show. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but yeah, I have some of it. That's the original show that you have, or because yeah. there's been like a billion of the Ultraman shows now? It's definitely in the 70s. I don't know. Like if it's the Ultraman original. Leo, I think, is one of them. And... I don't recall. It, it's it's definitely from the late 60s, 70s. So could, does that's the right one or not? <laughs> According to Wikipedia, Ultraman's changed a lot. He's now Damien666. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, Ultraman 2 uses the much less family-friendly gimmick of Damien666 after that. But yeah, we missed a Lucha match, unfortunately, so that's a bit of a bummer. Yeah, it is. Though it helps I'm wearing my good Lucha socks for recording. Okay. (laughs) That makes all the difference. Yes. So, since we don't have the dark match, I can't just give the MVP to Eddie Guerrero right now, unfortunately. (laughs) It saved me so much time and effort. I know you're tempted. I am, really. 
for three years. February has meant only one thing to the fans and superstars of World Championship Wrestling. It has meant Wrestle War. And this year, this annual event goes west to the arid sun country of Phoenix, Arizona, where tonight a capacity crowd at Memorial Coliseum and millions of fans worldwide exclusively on pay-per-view are set for World Championship Wrestling at its best. It's time for WrestleWall! We open with a video package showing shots of the Arizona desert as Tony Schiavone lies to us with his very first words, yes. claiming that February has been synonymous with Wrestle War for three years. If you'll recall, two years ago, Wrestle War was in May. Yes. WCW cannot even remember when its own shows took place. <laughs> Continuity is a really complicated thing, you know? <laughs> it is. Really great shots of the desert in Phoenix, Arizona, though. I, I thought they did a good job with those. Yeah, although, is arid really a compliment, though? Probably not. I guess if you're a desert, that's something you aspire to? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I know it's just the description for the desert, but that seemed like you would, it's like a nicer word for it. You know, it would seem weird if he opened the show with saying the pleasant and water-filled desert of Phoenix, Arizona. Sure, sure. <laughs> Tony welcomes us and the crowd to the show, and runs down the card as Pyro goes off on the stage. He lets us know that he's on interview duty for the night, and throws to tonight's commentary team, Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes. I don't know about you, Al, but I was thrilled to see Dusty. I had no idea this was a Dusty show. I could hear in your voice when they announced it, yes. Yeah. What? He had an awesome red jacket on, too. He did, he did, yes. JR says that we're going to have three championship matches tonight, but everyone's here for war games. Dusty agrees and shouts about war games excitedly while making hand motions like he's, I don't know, playing an invisible piano. <laughs> Puppeteering something, maybe? Don't ever change, Dusty. <laughs> he's just preparing for the Johnny B. Bad gimmick. There you go. Tonight's stage design is... interesting. Yeah. The slanted WCW logo is clearly designed to be set on the floor to look like it's rising out of the ground, but it's instead been raised into the air... So it looks all kinds of strange with the bottom part kind of cut off. Yes. I guess they just didn't want to pay for a new logo. <laughs> Apparently not, yeah. <laughs> I love the elevated entrance ramp, though. Mm-hmm, yeah. As we've got war games tonight, the arena is set up with two rings, one directly attached to the entrance ramp and the other right on the other side of the first ring. So if it matters, I'll call the one attached to the ramp ring one and the other ring two. That's the thing with any of these shows when they have war games or the one battleable show with when they have two rings. I don't understand why you need to switch rings every match. It is strange, yeah. I noticed that too as as we get in some of the matches that start in ring two. Mm -hmm. That it's always it always makes the entrances very awkward. Yes. So you have to go down the ramp, then stop, go to the floor, then go around the outside, then go into the ring, yeah. Yeah, I like the overall concept of the two rings, but yeah, I don't get why they have to actually swap them. I guess it's just, there is a side of the audience that doesn't quite get to see the action up close if you're mm. uh, always in ring one. Yeah, that's true. Well, at least on the plus side, they'll stop at two rings. I mean, can you imagine they had three rings? <laughs> yeah, that'd be ridiculous. It's time for the first match, so let's go to the rings. <laughs> Yes. All right, let's go to one of the rings. Yes. Our first match is the Big Cat and the State Patrol, that's Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker and Lieutenant James Earl Wright, 
versus Ricky Morton, Tommy Rich, and the Junkyard Dog in a six-man tag match for Morton, Rich, and JYD's WCW World Six-Man Tag Team Championship. The referee for this match is Lee Scott. And this is starting off in ring one. So, remember way back when I touched upon it before, the World Six-Man titles were abandoned after a complicated story involving... Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors and then their new replacement partner who just kind of stopped showing up and they just abandoned the titles. He's like, yeah, I'm busy in Japan. You guys, you guys are good. So this is two years after that. They decided, let's have these titles again. So they had a, basically had a mini tournament, had a few different teams, all completely random, it seems like, competing for them. And it's literally a week before this show on their TV tapings, they have the final match to determine the current champions. To give you an idea of how weird the teams are, the team they beat in the finals was Dutch Mantel, who we haven't seen since, what, a sixth arcade? Or a five star arcade? Been a while, yeah. Yes. The man of the very, very hairy back. <laughs> Buddy Landell, who of course we'll see later, and Dr. X. Okay. Dr. X was Moondog Rex, so he's most known from WWF. He has about a million gimmick names on Wikipedia, so <laughs> take your pick. But my favorite is from the list is uh, Dead Eye Dick. <laughs> Just for obvious reasons. That's, that's pretty good, yeah. A lot of the mid-card people at this point in WCW are territory guys, sort of in their last, the last part of their career, essentially. So to be clear, the finals of the tournament was between a slapped-together team with Morton Rich and JYD and another slapped-together team that involved a guy that was probably not in his regular gimmick. Yes. Setting themselves up for success early, aren't they? <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe you could argue the storyline with Deep Patrol, which is at least a regular tag team, and then Big Cat. Maybe he got a speeding ticket and he's working off of being their tag partner. <laughs> I mean, it's all logic. Yeah, sure. They always seem to do that, don't they? That they'll be holding a tournament and they'll have a pay-per-view coming right up, yes. but they'll hold the finals of the tournament on TV instead. Correct. They keep doing that. Yes. It feels like that's at least the fourth or fifth time that we've had this discussion. Right. Uh, well, this that was the last show with the U.S. tag titles. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the State Patrol come out in full traffic cop regalia, complete with what looked like ticket pads. I was really hoping that they cut a promo about ticketing somebody who was double parked in the parking lot or something, but no dice. <laughs> yeah, they could do like Brizongo did when they were the fashion police. They right. would give out tickets to people in the front row. Yeah. Morton and Rich have very shiny jackets. Yes. JYD has the thump written on the buttocks area of his pants. I assume you're going to point out what's obviously missing here from the entrances, right? Go ahead. The titles. True, true. There are yes. no six-man titles on this show, physically. <laughs> they, they don't have them. It's weird. That is, that is strange. Honest to goodness, I went on all sorts of search engines. I tried Yahoo, Bing if I have to, you know, all the good ones. And also Bing. And I tried to find pictures of the three of them wearing the belts. This team, no luck. They must have worn them at some point. But yeah, Googling it, it did nothing. <laughs> I can find pictures of other teams late in the, in the run with these titles wearing the belts. But yeah, I don't know the story with like, why these belts don't exist physically at this point. Maybe the shiny jackets were the title belts. They melted oh. them down to make the jackets. Could be, could be. Could be. Or Traverse, they're going to melt the jackets down into the belts. There you go. After some trash talking, JYD wins a slugfest and hits a clothesline and headbutt to send Cat stumbling to tag right. I just realized that this is uh, 
cat versus dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. Dog tags Morton and Dusty notes that Morton will be a lot faster than the JYD dog. <laughs> what does Dusty think that the D stands for? <laughs> Dusty? Sure. The junkyard Dusty dog. Yeah. Morton and dog double back elbow right, and we get a shot from a camera that has its color settings all wrong. They're all washed out and faded compared oh, to all geez. the other shots. Ah, uh, yes. The terrible camera begins. Yeah. They keep cutting to that camera periodically. I guess WCW needed new and exciting ways to screw up the show video. Yes. They're excelling at failing. Morton and Rich trade off against State Patrol with Morton's fast-paced offense and repeated Rich arm drags and arm bars. Nice spot with Morton lunging in to catch a Parker punch headed for Rich. Morton atomic drops both State Patrol members and Wright spills out of the ring. We watch Wright for a bit instead of the Parker versus Morton action in the ring. Tag to JYD, and Dusty yells, Go on, dog with it! (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Parker gives a really nice sell of a dog headbutt, stumbling clear across the ring. JYD starts off strong, but Cat rakes his eyes and clubs him as JYD, for some reason, rotates 180 degrees before toppling. Yeah. Weird sell. (laughs) It is a little odd, yeah. Cat gets two off an elbow drop. Tagged to Parker, but JYD no-sells and tags Morton, who gets nailed by right from behind to start the Ricky Morton selling segment. What a surprise. The heels get two counts off a Parker right double team second rope splash and double shoulder block, and a cat elbow drop and nice and surprising drop kick. Then more off a good Parker power slam and a one-handed bulldog, a right elbow drop, and a nice state patrol double team sequence of backbreaker slams and elbow drops. Cat in to catch a Morton leapfrog and turn it into a backbreaker for two, as he wasted time posing. (laughs) Cat slugs Rich to draw him in, distracting Scott. The heels triple-team Morton. Finally, Morton dodges a Parker charge and Parker eats turnbuckle, so Morton commando rolls to tag JYD, as Parker tags right. JYD runs wild with punches and headbutts, then his signature slam, the thump, but gets two as Cat breaks. JYD disposes of Cat and Morton randomly dives on top of Parker for the three-count and the win. JYD and Wright were the legal men. (laughs) That's true, yeah. So yes, the finish of the match involves precisely zero legal men. (laughs) Uh, Thoughts on this one? Uh, It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. Mm -hmm. My my description was so-so action. I mean, there's not really any botches here, other than production-wise using that terrible camera. Yes. And occasionally, you know, missing some action, but that's kind of, you kind of grade in the curve for WCW. <laughs> a little bit. They get bonus points if they don't miss action, basically. That's how it works. Thing about it is, it's a lot of uh, older veteran guys like Morton and Rich, and not obviously Big Cat's not that much of a veteran at this point, but just sort of older territory guys, so they kind of work a match they're used to. Mm-hmm. It's not like a regressive kind of match where... You have some where, like, late 90s, and it feels like you're watching an 80s tag match, and it just feels out of place. It's not quite there, but it's, we're getting into the 90s. It feels like wrestling's supposed to change a little bit. But you see throughout the show, where well, this match doesn't really represent that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I will say, I've never been a big JYD fan. And to be fair, I didn't grow up during his heyday, like in his prime. I haven't watched Mid-South Wrestling. So I'm judging on what I see him, the tail end of his career and his random appearances in WCW. So maybe I'm not judging him off the right stuff. But I will say, in spite of that, I did like his finishing move. The, the thump is good. It's, yeah, it yeah. looks cool, yeah. Yeah. I'll give him that. 
I just it's weird that he got the pins broken up and Morton just kind of hops in and pins him anyways. And 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 Scott's just like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And and also he's diving on the wrong person. Oh, <laughs> that's true. He isn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is just fun. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it was weird. I thought that was like gonna set up the third act of the match, but it's like, nope. I think I'm in pretty much in agreement. This was not a great opener, but it had its moments. It just seems pretty slow and basic anytime that Ricky Morton isn't in it. Yeah. The bit with him doing his Ricky Morton thing and selling for everybody is easily the best part of the match. Yeah. And it let State Patrol show off some actually rather nice double team moves. Sure, yeah. yeah. Outside of that part, this was alternately slow and repetitive. Rich seems to mostly hit arm drags into arm bars, and JYD didn't do much outside of punches and headbutts, though, like you said, the thump is a good slam. Yes. Cat also had some good power moves, though. Once again, against Morton, whose energy just seemed to bring out the best in his opponents. So this wasn't awful, and it did pump up the crowd pretty well, but it didn't do much for me. The one thing I thought was a little weird is the story between these two teams is that they each have like a big power guy on their side, JYD on one side, Big Cat. And it feels like the idea of Matic is that you're going to build up to that moment. Mm-hmm. But they just start with it. Yeah, they start with it. Now, they do kind of start with it via kind of teasing it. Sure, sure. that breaks up relatively quickly. Right, right. But yeah, it does feel like they kind of give away the game pretty early on there. Yeah, I, I would have thought you'd build towards the middle of the match or even the end of the match to have them actually interact. Yeah. It's not a terrible thing. It's just it's an odd part of the story for sure yeah i can i can see that this is the only world six-man tag championship match on pay-per-view ever <laughs> with these belts i should say yeah uh i think there's four or five pay-per-views this year we're trying to pick up where there's more shows per year but yeah so even with five shows this is the only match with these belts and they not really with the belts because they're not here right despite being champs for quite a bit after this Two-thirds of the championship team are on Super Brawl, basically wrestling as jobbers for big guys, which is extra weird, too. From what I read, the general idea of the six-man titles, at least the way it ended up being used, is for the most part, they were just keeping singles guys between their pushes, like, give them something to do. At this point, Robert Gibson's out injured, I believe. That's why Morton is in this team, what's not Ricky Morton, and and then with JYD. So it's just stuff like that where they they don't quite have a good spot from this point, so they just put them here. Oh, okay. The champs would hold the titles until May, which I can say the spoiler-wise because, again, no pay-per-view matches, so nothing to spoil on shows we're going to cover. <laughs> JR throws to Tony, who is with Terrence Taylor and Alexandra York. It's worth noting that Terry Taylor here was fighting York's client, Michael Wall Street, at Starcade 90, so there's been a rather quick transition here. Yes. The suit and glasses actually look pretty good on Taylor, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Jim and Dusty, thank you very much. With the York Foundation, of course, the computerized wrestler of the 90s, Terry Taylor. First of all, <laughs> Ms. York, I want to say how much success the York Foundation has had in World Championship Wrestling. You know, Tony, because of Terry Taylor's unbelievable skill in the ring, and because of the accuracy of the computer, the York Foundation is flourishing. I'm, I'm very pleased to say that. And we, we will continue to grow. We will expand. We're constantly looking for new wrestlers. Okay, later on, it's no disqualification against the Z-Man, Mr. Taylor. Yeah, we factored into the computer Z-Man's weakness. He doesn't have a fighting heart. He doesn't have a killer instinct. I do, and that'll be the difference in the match. I have one more very important thing to say. 
Mr. Taylor will defeat Z-Man in less than 15 minutes and 28 seconds. Do you have a prediction to go along with this? I predict pain. All right, there it is. Let's go back to the ring. <laughs> uh, this wasn't bad, honestly. Taylor and York work pretty well together, and Taylor pulls a lot of funny, arrogant bad guy faces when he's not talking. Mm-hmm. He seems to be enjoying himself in this gimmick. The computer prediction concept is ridiculous. Yes. And also, wouldn't it be cooler if it could specify the exact time of victory, not a range? True. I mean, a lot of matches end in less than 15 minutes and whatever seconds. Yes. But Taylor's ending line is terrific. He's clearly a big fan of Mr. T. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm unclear. So how is he a computerized man at this point? Yeah, that that's that's a bit of a weird title, isn't it? A bit, yeah. I get the computer is like a part of the story with him, but he's like doesn't have like a microchip in him or something. No, not that I'm aware of anyway. He doesn't have like a floppy disk slot in the on his back somewhere. I don't think that would be that helpful as a as a cybernetic attachment. No, no. I mean, that's what you would have had at the time, but yeah. I think my only issue with this is, so I know from stuff that goes forward that the York Foundation does get more people, but it feels weird that it's just her and one guy. It's not really a big foundation at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you got to start somewhere. No, sure. And restart somewhere when you lose your original guy and have to very quickly change. Yes. <laughs> Our second match is Brad Armstrong with an America jacket, but not the America jacket. Yes. Versus Bobby Eaton with a shiny non-America jacket and mullet. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson, and this match will be in ring two. Following Halloween Havoc the previous year, both Stan Lane and Jim Cornette left WCW. Eaton, however, did not go with them. So now he's left alone. He's got an established name, but only in a tag team. So he's got to basically rebuild himself here as a singles wrestler. Early on in his run, they had him fight people that he normally would have fought as part of the Minute Express, but now solo. So he fought people like Tom Zink and Brad Armstrong. So it's familiar opponents, but all different scenario because he's single. As for Brad Armstrong, he is currently between bad gimmicks because he just came off being the Candyman. Yes. I don't want to say that name three times. Yeah. <laughs> so for now, his gimmick is just being Brad Armstrong. Which, to be fair, is a fairly good gimmick among all the gimmicks that he gets. Yeah, if you're rating on a, on a, on a curve, for, yeah, his gimmicks is pretty up there, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at this point, they're just trying to build up really more Eaton at this point, but Armstrong is showing in as well as singles wrestlers. Oh, okay. During the entrances, JR tells us that Armstrong's brother is in Desert Shield, and a tape of this pay-per-view will be sent to our troops overseas. Eaton has what sounds like piped-in crowd chants during his entrance. It's weird, yeah. It's right? a little strange. I mean, it is a very heelish thing, I guess, to pipe in noise for yourself, but... I mean, it worked for Goldberg later, so... <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Dusty predicts that Eaton will earn a major singles title in 1991. Eaton attacks while Armstrong is looking at the crowd, and uses an eye rake, but Armstrong turns a back body drop into a head scissors in a cool spot. Eaton tries to get Armstrong's leg to escape an armbar, but Armstrong slips around to the side to avoid. They work around an Armstrong armbar for a bit, with Eaton only briefly escaping before Armstrong will take him back into it. Shouting and shoving match leads to a test of strength, and Armstrong climbs up Eaton, hops down the other side, and hits a rebound crossbody from the corner for two. Pretty cool variant on last year's spot, if not quite as smooth. 
Yeah, it's it's hard to top Morton doing that. I think. Yeah, but I mean, for for a fairly big guy, Armstrong is actually quite agile. Absolutely. Yeah. More armbar work, and Dusty tells us that Eaton's arm must be aching because Armstrong's been a grinding on it. <laughs> <laughs> Eaton gets free with a cheap shot and tries a slingshot suplex, but Armstrong floats over into his own suplex and keeps working the arm. We see Jason Hervey and Great Muda in the crowd, the latter in full face paint. Eaton gets two counts off a hard clothesline, a pop-up backbreaker, an elbow drop, and a very cool slingshot backbreaker. Mm -hmm. Dusty says, a fatal mistake at the start won't hurt you as much as later. I I think a fatal mistake would still be, you know, fatal. I've... That seems pretty clear, yeah. Yeah. Armstrong escapes a reverse chin lock only to eat an elbow right to the face Mm -hmm. and tangles in the ropes. Eaton rolls him out of the ring and drops him on the barricade. Back in, Eaton uses the ropes on an abdominal stretch, and Dusty says that's like aching all over because you spent yesterday crawling under houses to work on plumbing. What an odd comparison. (laughs) I mean, he's the son of a plumber. I guess so. Anderson finally catches Eaton cheating by surprising him crawling between Armstrong's legs. Eaton and Armstrong trade blows, and Eaton rakes the eyes, but Armstrong dodges a leap in the corner, and Eaton hits the turnbuckles. We get an epic Armstrong dropkick, and he gets two off a Russian leg sweep as Eaton gets the ropes. Eaton counters a back body drop with a neckbreaker, and goes up top for a nice top rope leg drop and oddly holds Armstrong's closer leg on the pin rather than the normal opposite leg. But he gets the three count and the win anyway. Thoughts on this one? Oh, so before we get into that, did you know who Brad Armstrong's brother talking about is serving in Desert Storm? That would be Road Dog, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. As, yeah, Brian Armstrong, yeah. He served till 93. Oh, that's that's cool. He was in the Marine Corps. He fought in Desert Storm where he was a platoon sergeant in command of 33 Marines. I like this match a lot. It's a very strong tactical match. It's one of those matches, like the previous match, where there's no botches or anything. Everything's very nice and smooth. Like, if you're watching a Bram Strong match and it, like, it feels chaotic and it feels like they're not hitting moves right, it'd be very surprising. Right. He's very reliable. Absolutely, yeah. You have to put him in this really bad to start noticing things. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's usually not his fault. They work at a really good pace. I like the pace of it. Mm-hmm. There's a tricky thing where you can work fast... And what can happen is you don't sell moves. Like you get into some lucha matches or yeah. like cruiserweight matches, basically in the end of WCW. You're taking you're taking a power bomb, it's getting back up. You got to run somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. this is a good balance of hitting hard moves, but also keeping the pace so it's not too slow, not too fast. The story and psychology, as it is, works. Yeah, and they'll do things where they can sell, but they can keep the match moving as well. Like Armstrong, like sprawling into the ropes. So he can kind of hold himself up and allow Eaton to continue doing moves on him uh, rather than you know, going fully down and having to drag himself back to his feet and stuff. So, Yeah, it's just one of those things you definitely pick up with experience. Mm-hmm. I like the moves and the counters. I like the bit where they done the uh, slingshot backbreaker. So they tried a similar thing, but the slingshot counted into suplex. So that was really nice. Those actually are reversed, the suplexes first. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, I get what you're saying. He recognizes, oh, he countered my suplex. I'll do something different with the slingshot this time. It's very cool. But just slingshot suplex is a really old school movie. You used to see a lot. You watch these shows and they, I don't think they had vanished, but it's definitely not nearly as used as it used to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a movie I really like. I think as long as you get the timing of it right, there's times you can do it where it looks very cooperative. 
Mm-hmm. Like you're very slowly setting it down so you can drop them and pull them back over. It's a tricky thing to do. I think they nail it really well here. Yeah. I think my only issue here is there's not really a story outside of the match itself. Mm-hmm. They're not competing for titles. Isn't like a you can make it like a number one contenders match, for instance. Because I know going forward you're gonna have Eden Town for titles. You could have had the number one contenders match to like say the TV title or something. And there's not like a blood feud or any serious like beef between these two, as far as I could tell. So it's a really well worked match. It's a really good match, but there's nothing extra to it. Right. That's my only thing to hold it back for me. It's a good, solid match, but it just doesn't go above and beyond for me. Yeah, you add a strong storyline to this match, beyond the match itself, and it, it, would, it would raise it up, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, this was really good. Mm-hmm. Some very creative spots in the match from both guys, and Eaton in particular had some very cool move variations. I love the uh, pop-up backbreaker, as I described it. Yes. And the slingshot backdrop as well. Uh, the latter, like we said, worked really well in the story, especially as Eaton realized that Armstrong had his normal move scouted, so he changed it up. Yes. It was a hot match, and it had good action. It did kind of slow down at a couple points when they were doing a lot of heavy holds. Mm-hmm. I do like Armstrong's wrist locks and arm bars, though. He makes it look like he's working those really heavily and applying pressure more than most. He's a grind in it. Yeah, yes, works. he's a grind done on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like the repeated holds give this too much of a start and stop rhythm, and it would have been a little bit stronger if they varied those up more or done more with them. Hmm, I see that, yeah. Still, it was a very fun match, and I would have liked this one as the opener rather than the six-man tag. It got me into it more. Oh, yeah, I I agree. I think booking-wise, the logic in a six-man match opening is you have, well, six different people, so you have all these different styles. And in theory, you can have a really interesting mesh of styles and... Obviously, we as we covered, we didn't really think they got there, but I think that's the idea why you book a match. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't object to the theory of putting yes. the six man tag on first. I just think in the actual event that actually happened in retrospect, which admittedly you can't use when you're booking the show, right? It feels like this would have been a a very good starting match. Yeah, absolutely. So, as Dusty would uh, predict. Titles and title attention are definitely in Eden's future. He's mm-hmm. a lot to prove at this point. He would challenge for the TV title in Super Brawl in May against Arn Anderson. Ooh, that could be a cool match. Armstrong's I mean, history is kind of interesting. So he wrestled a six-man match at the New Japan Super Show that they'll promote more heavily throughout this one. So the six-man tag match at the Super Show without the world six-man tag team champions. Jeez. It's Armstrong, Tim Horner, and someone else, I believe. Oh, okay. Lightning Express. But yeah, it's, it's weird that your six-man champions aren't representing you in six-man action, but whatever. As I mentioned in the beginning, Armstrong is between bad gimmicks, so he stopped being the candy man. That's only two. <laughs> and he would um, eventually go under a mask and bodysuit, sadly discarding his America jacket for now, oh. to become one of the greatest wrestling names ever, Fantasia. Oh, my gosh. Later, Bad Street, because Disney will sue you. Yes. And then, of course, Arachnoman. Yes. That, that is, yeah, that is this year as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, Arcade. New oh, one, yeah. gosh. <laughs> that so, poor guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, he's a good wrestler. Give him something good. Or just let him be himself, because he seems to be perfectly good at that. Yeah. So, at Super Bowl, there's an interesting bit. I'll cover it more when we discuss the other people involved in the match. But there's a... Match between the Young Pistols and the Freebirds at Super Brawl. 
So at the beginning of the match, Brad Armstrong comes out to help his brother, because his brother Steve is part of the Young Pistols. You he help them against the Freebirds, but then he, you know, he's, he's kicked away from ringside because he interfered, he's a copyright free. And he goes backstage, puts on his Fantasia outfit, and goes back out to help the Freebirds. <laughs> yes. That's his three faces of Foley moment. Oh my gosh. He interferes on behalf of both teams in one match. That, that's got to be a record. It has to be, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> JR throws to an ad for WCW Super Brawl, which is just a fanfare in the logo and the date of the show, because the show is not until May. So we have no idea at this point what's going to be on it and can't advertise. <laughs> I kind of wish it just said fanfare and it's a placeholder on it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Nice, uh, nice fanfare anyway. I kind of like that, but it was kind of a pointless promo. It was all pomp and no circumstance. <laughs> there you go. JR and Dusty talk about going to Japan in March and announce that the next match is between two Japanese women's wrestling tag teams. Dusty builds up the training of Japanese women wrestlers, and JR is worried that he and Dusty won't be able to pronounce the names properly. Good worry. Yeah. I, honestly, I, I probably won't either, but I hope I'll get closer than JR did. <laughs> yeah, and Dusty especially. Our third match is between Miss A and Miki Honda. Versus Itsuki Yamazaki and Mami Kitamura. The referee for this one is Lee Scott. And uh, this one is back in ring one. I assume this is promotion for the WCW New Japan Super Show, which it is to a certain extent. But neither team actually works in New Japan. They actually work for All Japan Women's Wrestling. Oh, that's interesting. They hype up the uh, historical nature of this match since both teams are Japanese on American pay-per-view. Which I think is true. I couldn't find one before that. However, I would note that Yamazaki is one half of the Jumping Bomb Angels. Yes. One of the greatest wrestling teams ever. Yes, one of the best teams ever and one of the best names ever. Yes. <laughs> they, of course, work for the WWF, working and winning at both Survivor Series and the Royal Rumble a couple years back. Yes. I think what they're actually claiming here is that it's the first Japanese women's tag team match where it's entirely... Yes, that's what I was giving the credit for that as well. As far as I know, that's correct. I can't find anything else. It's possible the AWA did that, but, you know, who follows AWA? <laughs> JR immediately screws up Kitamura's name, and Dusty decides that he's only going to call Miss A's moves. <laughs> he likes her, yeah. One leg of Honda's outfit is longer than the other. I didn't like that when Zack Ryder did it, and I don't like it here. <laughs> you know it. Dusty is also confused by that outfit, mm -hmm. but he's very impressed with Miss A. He likes Miss A's uh, very loud Steiner-esque outfit, yeah. Yes. Miss A would later go by the much more awesome name of Dynamite Kansai. Amazing. Yes. Kitamura comes out with a kendo shinai and looks bad with it. Mm-hmm. Kitamura has an outfit that reminds me a lot of Eddie Guerrero's early outfits. She has the black and... Black and orange it is. Yeah, is it's not it? the yeah. same color, but it's the same, very similar pattern. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, uh, just to know, I have never watched any of these wrestlers before, and JR and Dusty were not very helpful calling out the right names in the match. So, I looked them up, and I think I've got the names aligned properly, but my most sincere apologies if I have not. JR and Dusty uh, called the wrong names several times in this match, so... Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't have a lot of confidence in, in yeah. my notes. Having flashbacks to um, when they couldn't decide whether it's Rey Mysterio or Mysterioso or Mysteric. Yes. At that one starcade? Yeah. 
A and Honda whip Yamazaki and Kitamura at each other, but the two swing around and hit stereo dropkicks. Do-si-do spot. Classic. Kitamura and A start off the match proper, but Kitamura quickly tags Yamazaki, who hits an amazing flying arm drag off the top on A, then climbs the ropes for a sunset flip for two. Kitamura in for a back elbow that bounces off A. <laughs> Kitamura's punches do nothing, and A roars and lands punches and kicks as JR confuses Kitamura with Honda, who's on the opposite team. <laughs> Honda in, and she gets one off a back body drop and slam. A gets back in, and Dusty is very excited. <laughs> A gets two off a beautiful vertical suplex. A nice counter as Kitamura turns a A elbow drop into a rear naked choke variant, and counters a whip by springboarding back out of the corner to elbow A in the face. That looked like it hurt. Yes. Yamazaki in for rapid offense with a flying cross chop, drop kick, and an impressive double underhook suplex on the larger A for two. We got a big crowd and dusty reaction for that one. I, well, I like that because she really builds up how tough and big the move's going to be. Yes. I feel like she probably could have done it the first time, but she's intentionally teasing it. Yes. And she, she very much wins the crowd over. I think at that, that precise moment is the moment you can tell that the crowd's like, oh, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> well, and once they start kicking each other, that really gets their attention as well. Yes. Kidmura gets in, but she misses A tagging Honda and gets knocked flat. Dusty proposes getting JR a date with Miss A when they're in Japan later in the year. <laughs> Kitamura sneaks in an inside cradle for two, but Honda gets a suplex for two. Dropkick and Bulldog let Kitamura tag Yamazaki, who hits a rolling headbutt into a gut wrench suplex for two, but eats absolutely vicious kicks in the corner from A. Dusty reconsiders the JR date plans. <laughs> <laughs> More kicks, and someone in the crowd actually bellows, Leave that girl alone! <laughs> <laughs> Test of strength, and Yamazaki springs up onto A's shoulders and flips her into a sunset flip in one smooth motion in one of the most amazing spots I have ever seen. That's pretty impressive, yeah. It gets two. A turns it over for another two. A and Honda get two counts off an A bridging suplex and high back suplex and a Honda fisherman suplex. Double-team shoulder block ragdolls Kitamura, and she eats a double suplex, but manages to tag Yamazaki, who hits a dropkick off the top to A and Honda. Sunset flip on A, but she won't go down, so Kitamura dives off the top with a clothesline. That gets two for Yamazaki. Mm -hmm. A monster A clothesline floors Yamazaki, but she gets a foot on the ropes at two, then counters a whip with a wheelbarrow victory roll for the three count and the win. The crowd erupts, totally won over by the match. Dusty laughs as he accidentally calls the wrestlers men during the replay and corrects himself. <laughs> he seems very impressed with the match overall. He does, yeah. Thoughts on this one? This is a really good match. Was, mm -hmm. My note was that it was strongly worked. Yeah. Like the first two matches, there's no botches. You know, keep going back to that. It's just, there's a real crispness to everything they do. There's really good precision and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. the double drop kick, yeah, the arm drag, all of that. Those kicks in the corner really look like they hurt. Ow! Yeah, yeah. I, I I was wincing at that point. Yeah. I was having real flashbacks for me watching Warriors and Daniel Bryan stuff with his yes kicks. Mm -hmm. Or I guess it would be high kicks. The Japanese. <laughs> this is possibly a Dark Horse match of the night. Because I had no idea any of these people were when the show started and they had a really good match. The only thing that holds it down is contextually there's no story for us between them. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that 
there is. This, it's not brought up and there's no promos or anything. Obviously, this is done later. They would have had the same one person managing all Japanese people. <laughs> yes. Who would have cut a promo explaining, I guess, both sides of the argument for them. The tragic breakup of Sonny Ono's faction. Yes. I like the idea that he would come out, stand next to the one team, and explain why they were wronged, and then move with their team and explain why they were wronged instead. There's a WWF show where Jim Cornette does that. Oh, that's true. Because it's the the weird mixed-up Survivor Series oh, match that, they do. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he, he stands in one locker room with, with one of his wrestlers and talks them up, then goes over to the other locker room and claims he's been there the entire time. <laughs> well, Sid Vicious looks on very confused. <laughs> that's classic Cornette for you, yeah. The finish was really good. The only thing was it seemed like they were building and building and then it's just a counter move. Oh, my God, it was a very good counter move. That was a very sudden finish for me. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Amazing fast-paced action here. It's a very short match, but it's still one of the most fun tag matches that I've ever seen. There's more action in that short amount of time than in longer matches by far. Absolutely. It's just flat-out action all the time with hard strikes, picture-perfect suplexes, and some amazing aerial moves. It had a great back-and-forth competitive feel. I never felt like one side was getting too much time and control. No. And the swings and momentum felt real. I was particularly impressed with Yamazaki and Miss A, the former for a lot of very cool acrobatic moves, yeah. and the latter for some absolutely monstrous strikes. Particularly, as you noted, Al, those kicks in the corner. Yes. Ouch. It reminded me of a more kick-heavy Vader. Hmm. <laughs> I became an instant fan of all four of these wrestlers, and I really want to go find more of their matches. Absolutely great stuff. It's Kay, or Tsuki, how you pronounce it. She retired by the end of 1991 from wrestling. Yeah, which is interesting. I wanted to note that, because she's actually 26. Oh, wow. 25 or 26 when she does that. Apparently, this was a thing at the time, that a lot of Japanese women's wrestlers would retire around that age. And it's basically said that it is to allow them to go and start a family okay. before they're too injured from wrestling. Huh. So I'm not clear on whether that was the expectation of them, in which case that'd be bad, or if it's just something that they tended to do because they actually had that as a goal, in which case, you know, fine for them. Right, right. But there's another wrestler around this same time period, and I forget which one, that intentionally breaks that tradition, but uh, Yamazaki at least appears to have gone with it. It's it's interesting because she's such an amazing wrestler, but she basically retires at about 25 or 26 years old, which is so, so very early for a wrestler. She does make a few appearances down the line, I believe, but uh, nothing where she actually truly comes back as making it her career again. JR throws to Tony, who is with Missy Hyatt. Thank you very much, Jim Ross. You're right. You know, we saw Japanese women wrestlers and a first right here exclusively on pay-per-view. And we have another first a little bit later on, right, Missy? That's right. You know, women have never been treated equally in their professions. And I've tried many times to go into the locker room and get an interview. And tonight, right here, I'm going to go in the locker rooms of World Championship Wrestling and get an interview. Do you know who you're going to interview? Well, no, not yet. I'm kind of looking for a babe. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, guys. She's looking for a babe. We'll be going to Missy in the dressing room a little bit later on. Right now, back to the ring. So, uh, that was completely unnecessary and a little bit depressing coming off an amazing women's match. A bit. They kind of turn it around to be more mocking 
increased women's involvement in the wrestling business. A, a bit, yeah. So this is going nowhere good. No. And uh, I say let's move on. Okay. Our fourth match is Nature Boy Buddy Landell versus The Natural Dustin Rhodes. Referee for this match is Nick Patrick. I just realized this is the Nature Boy versus the Natural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nature Boy and Natural Man. Yes. This is back in Ring 2. Bylandell is kind of weirdly come back again. He's doing his Nature Boy stick while Ric Flair is also around, which has always felt odd to me. Yes. Especially at this point, Ric Flair has just cut his hair, as we'll see later in the show. So it's funny seeing Bylandell with the like classic Ric Flair look when Ric Flair has short hair now. <laughs> Like he shows up and is like, wait, what do you mean? Uh, I'm not cutting my hair. He's it's all grown out. <laughs> Fine. Keeping up with his quote-unquote real nature boy stick, a young road family member was the logical choice from the target. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> this is Dustin Rhodes' first pay-per-view match for WCW. Obviously, he wrestled a couple times in WWF when his dad was still there. Supposedly, it's Buddy Landell's last pay-per-view match for WCW. That's a crossing of uh, history, I guess. Handing off of the nature, I guess, huh? Yeah, I see that. <laughs> As Landell enters, JR says that Missy Hyatt's interview will be the first time in professional wrestling that a female broadcaster has done an interview from the men's locker room. Hey, remember Starcade 83 and Barbara Clary? JR apparently does not. <laughs> What's history? I mean, come on. <laughs> Landell's music sounds very corporate, like mm-hmm. he should be part of the York Foundation. I think we were joking when it first happened. It's like the background of a training video. Yeah? Yes, yeah. He comes out in an insufficiently sparkly robe. It looks more like a dressed-up bathrobe than a Ric Flair style It one. really does. I, was yeah. saying, I didn't mention it yet, but his robe is definitely trying to be Ric Flair, but it is uh, not. It's, it's, it's the budget Ric Flair robe, like he's kind of the, the budget Ric Flair. Yes. It's like he bought the Ric Flair Halloween costume, but he didn't buy it from the good costume store. <laughs> Dustin Rhodes, sadly, does not yet have his awesome, well, they call him the natural... Natural. ...theme song. <laughs> JR says that this is a first for him, commentating on with someone whose son is also wrestling, and asks Dusty's feelings on Landell fighting his son. Dusty says Landell better be ready to take care of business because Dustin was raised to wrestle, and he is the natural. He's proud of Dustin, but this is a test for him. Uh, just to be clear, since we have Dustin Rhodes and Dusty Rhodes in the match, I'm going to call Dustin Rhodes and Dusty Dusty. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how consistent I manage to be. Don't worry, I'll keep track of it. Landell tries to mess with Rhodes' head by pointing out Dusty at ringside. Slapped by Landell, and he gives a great evil laugh. So Rhodes slugs him. Punches, back body drop, and a drop kick for two for Rhodes. And Landell hides behind Patrick, who gives him a stern talking to. Dusty says that he warned his son not to get over-anxious, because Landell can take advantage fast. Rhodes does a Dusty-style elbow, and Dusty confirms for JR that they are hereditary. <laughs> To clarify, he says it's hereditary, and then adds, you have to be born with it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Lindell visibly calls a spot, just as JR is saying that he looks (laughs) glassy-eyed. Rhodes earns another two off a high-velocity clothesline. Rhodes armbar, and he keeps wrenching on it to pain Lindell anytime Lindell tries to go for a punch, like that bit. Now, is he wrenching or is he grinding? He he was wrenching. Okay, to clarify. Lindell finally escapes and slams Rhodes. He goes up top, but falls prey to the curse of the nature boy, as Rhodes flings him to the mat. Landell begs for mercy, and Dusty says that's when you have to be careful so Landell doesn't bite ya. 
dramatic moving shot of the ring as the wrestlers circle. Landell dodges a Rhodes charge, and Rhodes eats corner post. Landell cheats up a storm, grinding his knee and boot on Rhodes' face, tugging his hair, raking his eyes, and close fist punching, earning counts and repeated lectures from a very audible Nick Patrick on multiple illegal holds, but always breaks in time. He earns some two counts with punches and slams. Patrick can be heard saying something like, we've got to go home to Landell. Yeah. <laughs> Rhodes is two days to even reverse a whip and slumps on the ropes, but levers free of a sleeper and gets his own, only for Landell to fall forward to smack Rhodes' face into the turnbuckle. Rhodes gets a boot up on a corner charge, and Landell hits it hard and flops. Hello, number 12, Dusty yells. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, that was like the hardest I think I've seen that spot. <laughs> Rhodes fires up and hits repeated clotheslines, sending Landell out of the ring, and brings him back in for a press slam and bulldog for the three count and the win. Dusty is very proud of his son for the victory, but says that Landell will live to hunt another day. Thoughts on this one? So, going back to my thoughts before about the first match, about how it felt a bit old school, this one definitely feels like that, at least as far as when Landell is in control. Mm -hmm. The writer of Landell is sort of mandating the pace and obviously you know calling spots yes it definitely feels like trying to work like it's an old school Ric flair match mm -hmm. for better or worse because it's not a bad match but it's definitely edging on archaic for the time so thankfully dustin's part is interesting enough it's interesting seeing him do a press slam although it's not the best press slam no but you know he's, he's i'm i'm grading on curve because he is this is his first interview match for the company he has plenty of time to improve as we know mm -hmm. he's literally still wrestling in 2020 so yeah. Yeah. He's got plenty of chance to clearly points. clearly has done something right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the key thing of this match is you're supposed to take away how good Dustin is, or very least how good he can be. Mm -hmm. It's definitely his showcase match for sure. This is let's see Dustin's potential both in actual storyline and in the actual like I guess out of character purpose of the match. Correct. There's two ways you can book matches like this. When you're trying to build them up, you can give them a jobber. So, you know, you could take one of the state patrol guys, for instance, and have, you know, Dustin come in and hit three moves and beat him. And he looked really strong, but is that a good test of his abilities? Mm -hmm. Whereas the other way, what they chose to do here, is have it be a fairly even match with a veteran talent like Landell. Basically, so this is what you can see how he can sell, how he can sort of work comebacks. So it's a good test for him in that regards. Mm hmm. I think as you noted when we were watching it, there's a bit where one or both of them definitely gets a bit um, winded. Yeah. So it slows down a bit towards the end. The ending was a little weird because they fight to the outside, do one move, and then just roll back inside. A little quite bit, get yeah. that. Yeah. It's like they had a longer part plan, and then they're like, oh, right, we get we get to finish the match in 30 seconds, and they just roll them in and finish it. Yeah. It was well done, but yeah, especially in contrast to the last match where the crowd really gets into it. It was quiet enough where you could hear Nick Patrick and hear Riley Andell. <laughs> yes. So, it's not good. I, I will say part of it, I think, is the camera guy getting very close at a few points. Sure, sure. And Nick Patrick is not the quietest referee either, but he was more audible in this match than ever. <laughs> yeah. Make me yearn for, especially when he's fully retired, like guest referee John Cena. Yes. Oh my gosh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a bad match here, honestly. Uh, Landell shows off a good bit of character, even if that character is lower-budget Ric Flair. Yeah. And like back on Starcade 85, I thought he had a good mix of smooth holds and surprisingly sharp strikes. His interaction with Patrick was fun, continually getting right up to the edge of getting DQ'd. 
not the smartest strategy, probably, to actively annoy the ref, but it worked with his arrogant character. Mm-hmm. Rhodes isn't much more at this point than a basic fired-up babyface, but he plays that role well enough, yeah. and he interacted well with Landell. Sure. We saw some early signs of good crowd interaction from him as well. Uh, he realized part of the crowd was starting a Landell sucks chant, and immediately started stomping in rhythm to keep it going. Oh yeah, that's true, I didn't catch that, but you're right, yeah. I could have done with a few less holds and a bit more action, but I still had fun with this. I really have to say, it's too bad that Landell never really found another gimmick, because he's pretty good, honestly, but it's just that there's someone else in WCW doing the same gimmick better. Yes. So I, I would have loved to see what he could do with some other heel character. In this role, he's always going to feel like the lesser version of Ric Flair. Yeah. I agree with you. This was a match to show Dustin's potential, and I think he showed it quite well. Uh, Rhodes, unsurprisingly, would stick around and do quite well in WCW. <laughs> There's some guy in the booking committee named Ronalds who seemed to be a fan of his. <laughs> Landell, however, did not have a lengthy career in WCW after this. As mentioned, this is his last pay-per-view match. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, he was fired for, and I quote, allegedly blowing snot at a hotel manager. Oh, jeez. That's what it says. I have no context. I don't know the whole story. I'm sure there's a shoot video where they explain that, but that's all I have is that reference. Oh, man. That guy. He really could be, like, a solid hand in the company yeah. if he could just manage to stick around. <laughs> yeah. I thought he did fine in that match against Terry Taylor trying to be a face. Yeah. But then it just abruptly stops, like, two weeks after that. That seems to be yeah. the thing. He'll get, like, something that is like, oh, this guy's actually pretty good, and be trying to get some momentum, and then something goes wrong outside of wrestling, and yeah, that's a, that's a, that's the story with him, unfortunately. Yeah. JR throws to Tony, who throws to Missy in the men's dressing room. Missy is very excited and says she's going to be the first woman to interview a wrestler, which is just blatantly, unquestionably wrong. She goes into the locker room looking for babes, and an angry, tobacco-spewing Stan Hansen chases her back out and calls her a heifer. Hooray for misogyny? Yeah, I guess. Ugh, this was awful. Tony face palms, which seems like an apt description of this segment, and it's time for our next match. Match 5 is The Young Pistols, Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers, versus The Royal Family, Jack Victory and Zod, I mean Rip Morgan. <laughs> yes. Referee for this match is Randy Anderson. And we're back to ring one for this one. I did not expect to see The Royal Family again. No. I actually thought they were a one-off tag team for Starcade 90. Well, they are, they are and they aren't, yeah. They come out in their rather wonderful Renaissance Fair outfits to a trumpet and flute fanfare. I kind of love that entrance. <laughs> JR and Dusty, meanwhile, discuss the Missy Hyatt segment, and JR notes that Stan Hansen may be a little chauvinistic. You think? <laughs> the sky's a little bit blue, too. Dusty would like us to know that Stan's opinions are not shared by the commentary team. The Young Pistols have nice shiny cowboy dusters and chaps. They should have gone with shiny hats, too, to completely blind the audience. Yes. Sadly, the chaps don't stay on for the match. The Royals whip the pistols at each other, but they loop around only for the Royals to hit twin clotheslines. I guess the Royals were watching the Japanese women's match. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Royals throw Armstrong out of the ring, but he comes back in with a top rope crossbody to both, and the pistols hit dropkicks to drive the Royals out. The Royals get back in, and the lights go out. <laughs> <laughs> WCW gets spotlights on the ring relatively quickly as Morgan and Smothers start the match proper. 
Morgan uses the hair to keep Smothers in a headlock, but Smothers punches free and smoothly tags Armstrong while monkey flipping Morgan out of the corner. Cool spot there. Stereo pistol drop kicks to each royal in turn, as JR confuses Steve Armstrong with Brother Brad momentarily. They do both have wonderful hair. That's true. The royals roll out and come back in as the lights are fixed. It's funny that the lights turn off and come back on when the royals are climbing back in the ring. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird timing, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of a bookend there. Yeah, yeah. Morgan slams Armstrong and tags Victory. The pistols trade off against Victory and work his arm with arm bars, wrist locks, and a double arm ringer, and earn a two count off a double flying shoulder block. Victory dodges an Armstrong crossbody, and Armstrong lands hard. Morgan and Victory trade off, and Morgan gets two off a back elbow. Morgan roars on most of his moves. Armstrong counters a Victory charge with a big boot and both tag out. Smothers runs wild with punches and super kicks to both Royals, and hits an unusual twisting back elbow to Morgan, but gets whipped to the ropes by Victory for a Morgan kick. Victory clotheslines him out of the ring, and Morgan smacks him into the ring post, then beats him up outside as Armstrong accidentally distracts Anderson with his protest. Victory and Morgan wear Smothers down with some sharp strikes. Unfortunate bear hug, but awesome spinebuster by Morgan for two. Dusty says it'll make your back crack, your liver quiver, and your knees freeze. <laughs> he added to his normal statement in that one. Check that off of uh, Dusty Road to Bingo. Double teaming and strikes, and they earn another two count off a Morgan whip into a victory flying clothesline as Armstrong saves. The Royals try more double teaming, but Armstrong slips in and drop kicks them during a double suplex, and Smothers falls just about right on his head, but falls onto Morgan for the three count and the win. The Royal family mope as the Pistols celebrate, as Dusty says this victory moves the Pistols up towards the world tag titles. Thoughts on this one? Uh, it was decent. I didn't get a whole lot out of this match. We've seen a Young Bucks with a couple of times, but there never been a really good showing from them, at least so far in the, mm-hmm. in the series. They were split up for Starkin' 91, weren't they? Yes, they were. And I recall disliking both of them strongly on that show. Uh, and this one, I do have to say, I liked them a lot better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, so maybe they, together they, they're good, but when it, when it separates yeah. them, it just does not work. They're the wonder twins of tag wrestling, I guess. <laughs> This whole match feels a little bit like filler. It's not like these are really big teams you got to promote. Especially the royal family, who, as we mentioned, we weren't aware even existed anymore. Correct. <laughs> Obviously, they like the Young Pistols. Because Dusty, at this point, likes tag teams and he likes gimmicks. That's sort of Dusty's thing. Yeah. So he likes them, you know, wearing the cowboy hats and dusters and everything. So I can see why they're promoted. And, and they're a decent tag team. It's not like they're bad. It's just... This match goes about 12 minutes, and the women's tag match, we had six minutes. Yeah. I feel like you could take some time from this, maybe, for the other one. This is really just developed the Young Pistols, I think, mm-hmm. is all I can get from this. But yeah, it's okay, but it's one I'm not going to remember too much, honestly, afterwards. Yeah. I, I would agree. I don't think it's very memorable. I feel like I feel a little more positive towards it. thought it was, honestly, a, a pretty good little match. Mm-hmm. It did get a tad repetitive at places, especially with the Young Pistols repeatedly falling for the same tricks from the royal family. But there were some cool double-team spots by both teams, and it kept up a reasonable pace the whole way. We had good overall tag work, and I like that both teams felt like actual teams in this. Mm-hmm. Sure. We sometimes get tag matches where people just feel like they're independently wrestling and tagging out occasionally. Yeah. But in this one, we got a lot of teamwork by both. I quite liked the ending spot, though it looked like it could have gone better for Smothers. Mm-hmm. It caught me off guard, and it looked very dynamic. 
Some nice twists and turns to this one, and I ended up liking it. Also, Rip Morgan is loud. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm amused by the royal family with the swords on their tights. Yes, cross swords on the sides of their tights. Because <laughs> when I think New Zealand, I think Three Musketeers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For reasons I'll get into a bit later, the Steiner brothers would vacate the WCW United States Tag Team Championship, which they were currently holding. Okay. After the titles are vacated, management decides that instead of holding a tournament, which I sorry, warned you, sorry, they didn't hold a tournament for this. <gasps> I, I'm sorry, I, I should have... What is this company? <laughs> yes. And instead, they decided that we'll just pick these two teams that we think are most deserving and they'll fight in a single match for this, which would be the match I talked a little bit about at Super Brawl between the Young Pistols and the Freebirds. Okay. With the aforementioned double Armstrong spots. The Royal Family will not do much more in WCW. Their last major appearance, according to Wikipedia, was unsuccessfully challenging for the World Six-Man titles. Okay. With their partner, Black Bart, who we have not <laughs> seen since Dark in 1985. Wow. That's a yeah. blast from the past. Yes. Because their brawl's in May, and their, their last major match is April. So yeah, they're out of here. JR throws to Tony, who is with DDP. DDP has a shiny jacket and an earring that looks like a smaller version of Terry Funk's from last year. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes. Yes, Diamond Dallas Page, the manager of the fabulous Freebirds. A little bit later on, going after the world tag team title in Doom. And we saw it on Nationwide TV. You kind of tricked Teddy Long into this. Genius, you got to call it genius. Am I right, Giovanni? Well, of course I you do. The bottom line is Teddy Long matching wits with Diamond Dallas Page. Get serious. Give me a break. There's no way that peanut head could match wits with me, brother. But I'm not even mad with Teddy Long, who I do have the problem is World Championship Wrestling. Been looking over two of the greatest talents in the world, the fabulous Freebirds. Well, brother, you're not looking over them anymore. I proved to the world that they would be the champions because tonight they're going to drop to them like a bad habit. Now, getting back to Long, these Copenhagen dipping, coupon clipping, draft beer drinking rednecks call him a peanut head. Well, it's quite obvious when he's got that little mind how I could be. Let me, let me have this microphone right now. Let me say something to you, Dallas Page. I have had just about enough of you. Now, let me say one thing right now. I thought you were my friend. I tried to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. But no, you duped me with the free bird. So, yo, brother, check this out. Tonight, the Doom will walk out the World Tag Team Champions, and you're responsible for the rumor that's going around talking about Doom is splitting. Well, Doom ain't splitting. And tonight, you're going to find out, and I'll see you down the road somewhere, because homie don't play that, buddy. See you, homie. The bottom line is... Two, one, it don't matter. The, the, the doom is going to drop like a bad habit here tonight, and I'll prove it to the world. All right, tempers are flaring in World Championship Wrestling. Back, back to action. <laughs> Page is very new to the company here, though he has been managing since 1988. Yes. He seems very confident on the big stage. I like Tony's reaction to him, too, especially at the beginning where Paige asks him a question, then answers it himself. Tony pulls this wonderful, irritated face. <laughs> <laughs> Paige does say a couple of perplexing things, like mixing up looking over and overlooking, and calling Long a peanut head before saying that the crowd, who is just insulted, calls Long a peanut head. But didn't, didn't you just do that? <laughs> yes, a bit, yeah. But I think Paige does a really great job building up the match here. 
I like the sense of righteous indignation that Long has, and DDP makes excellent sarcastic faces while Long is talking. Mm-hmm. It's not fully polished, I think, but a good segment nonetheless. Yeah, it's a great example. He has this real boisterous energy. Mm-hmm. Once he's just more seasoned yes. and more used to this, he can definitely get the wrinkles out of it, I would say, yeah. Yeah, you can tell he's already pretty good at promos. Yes. And you can tell that once he has a little bit more time to hone his craft and get used to the big stage and and the pay-per-views and everything, DDP is going to be very good. Obviously, we can see that in retrospect, but I think even if you hadn't seen his later stuff, you'd be like, they've got something with this guy. (laughs) He feels very natural, like you said. Yeah. He should have managed Dustin. (laughs) There you go. I just (laughs) got the joke, but but that actually wouldn't have been a terrible idea. (laughs) No, no, it wouldn't have. No, it was pretty fun. That gets the story across. Our sixth match is Terrence Taylor, the computerized wrestler of the 90s, with Alexandra York versus the Z-Man in a no-disqualification match. The referee for this match is Lee Scott. And this one's back in ring two. WCW at this point has got a pretty big undercard of wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So what they're trying to do, besides putting randomly in six-man pairings to bide time, is trying to build stables and groups like they did before. So obviously this is the beginning, as you got from the promo, starting with the York Foundation, that was in New York, getting all these people together. So Taylor is the first, as the villain person, as we alluded to, mm-hmm. uh, for this group. So he immediately has been feuding with Z-Man. They're about the same spot in the card. And apparently on previous shows to this, like on the TV tapings, they would have matches that were so spirited that they would end in DQ. They would, you know, shove the ref or they would, you know, do move their line to. Oh, okay. It happens on each side. So that's the came with the of making no DQ match. Okay. Pretty simple, but a fairly effective story. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did they end up on the same team at Starcade 91? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, let's figure in Arn versus Terrence Taylor and Z-Man, yeah. I thought so, yeah. Because I remember seeing these two together at some point. So <laughs> We get some excellent corporate motivational video entrance music for Taylor. The shiny red and silver jacket doesn't quite work with the theme, though. He should still come out in the suit or something. Yeah, exactly. York brings out her computer, of course. Yes. Z-Man gets big cheers. I guess the crowd appreciates his deep knowledge of dropkicks from the top rope. Yes. York shows Taylor something on her computer. It has a long, thin green screen just above the keyboard. It's like a stretched-out original Game Boy screen. You want to wager a guess on how much that computer weighs, given this 1991? Yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't look that heavy when she's holding it, but... I feel like interior-wise, it's got to be... Like, the battery and stuff's got to be super heavy. It's, it's got to be, yeah. I mean, they're definitely heavy enough that I can picture it being used as a blunt object in a match. Let's, let's put it that Which, way. Which, yeah. That became generally how the computer would predict things. Yes. It would say, you're going to win, and then she hit the guy in the back while the ref isn't looking. Yeah. We are quite early in the portable computing era here. Yes. Z-Man gets the early advantage, as Taylor repeatedly retreats for brief consultations with York and her computer which is clearly actually turned off, despite her typing in it quite a bit. (laughs) I hear that computer can hold a database consisting of up to five whole records. Oof. Wow. After a hard Z-Man punch, Taylor nurses his face, then lunges for Z-Man the moment he turns away and stops dead to act hurt again as Z-Man turns back. Hilarious spot there. (laughs) (laughs) Z-Man gets two counts off a headlock takeover, a shoulder block, and a second headlock takeover, but Taylor rolls him over on the second for two. Taylor goes for another consultation, and the computer is still off. Could the camera guy maybe, you know, 
not shoot the screen. Yeah, she she really should have like stressed him away the first time. Yeah, something. Yeah, more Z Man two counts off a back body drop and a headlock takeover. That's the third time that happened. Shouldn't the computer tell Taylor to watch for those? <laughs> well, if it was on, it would. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Z-Man works the headlock, and Taylor tries to escape, but Z-Man walks up the corner and flips him back to the map for two. Taylor finally forces a break in the corner and headbutts Z-Man. We get a shot of Nikita Koloff in the crowd. Dusty's happy to see his old pal Koloff. In the do-rag he's wearing, Koloff looks a bit like Jesse Ventura. Yes, I can see that. They end up outside, where Taylor rams Z-Man into the barricade and chokes him with a TV cable. Scott tries to stop him, and Taylor asks what Scott is going to do, disqualify him? Good question. <laughs> I don't think Scott knows the answer to that either. Yeah. Back in, Taylor gets two counts off a nice backbreaker and sunset flip, and assures us that Z-Man will give up on a reverse chin lock. Another shot of York typing in her deactivated computer. Will no one tell them to stop filming the screen? Hiro Matsuda is in the crowd. JR says that this is York's first major pay-per-view representing her York Foundation. I thought she was doing that at Starcade 1990. Did that not count, I guess? Maybe it was she was just representing Wall Street at that point? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I could that's... have sworn they said York Foundation, but I might be wrong. Taylor gets two counts off a railing ram, knee drop, and nice rebound clothesline. He protests the count. Z-Man fights back and gets two counts off a slightly awkward super kick and a power slam. Z-Man ends a Giri as York types furiously, still sadly unaware where the power button is. If you types hard enough, it'll turn on. <laughs> the static electricity of her fingers hitting the keys will eventually power, <laughs> power it up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, maybe she's not typing. She's desperately pressing buttons to try to figure out which one turns the computer on. That one's also a valid possibility, yeah. Dusty screams for Z-Man to cover, but he goes to the top rope. York climbs to the apron and distracts Scott, presumably asking for technical support. As Z-Man hits a crossbody. Scott isn't there to count, so Z-Man protests, but Taylor pulls his tights to roll him up and keep him down for the three count and the win. Z-Man decks Taylor after the match, and Taylor flees outside. Z-Man yells at York, but Taylor comes in to ambush him, but Z-Man catches him and Atomic drops him out of the ring. Taylor gets the win, though. Thoughts on this one? Uh, like the last match, it's not bad, but there's really not a whole lot to this. Where we have someone in a new gimmick... I try to be a little fair because it's like their first big show for it. Mm-hmm. It's something like DiBiase, five years in Million Dollar Man and just like forgetting how to work stuff. This is Terry Taylor basically taking over the Million Dollar Man character. Yes. <laughs> in WCW, trying to figure out how that works. And obviously, I know he can be a good heel because he did win me over that one show, 87, I believe. The one with him and Koloff, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. Who are both here, fittingly enough. Yes. Interesting how that works out. <laughs> so I know he can do it. He does as much as he can with what they give him, like the, the bit where he's selling the face and all that. That that was gold. That yeah. spot was gold. I think the idea that he's getting help from the computer could work if you didn't give away the game that's pulling <laughs> yes. that on every single time. Do that like once or twice and have Z-Man follow him and like catch it or something. Mm-hmm. Some sort of payoff to that, but it just, it's not there. The no DQ thing is weird because it's like, Okay, so he chokes him, and they do a um, over-the-top rope to the outside toss, I believe, don't yeah. they, in this one? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not used very much. The no-DQ thing is not used very much. Taylor does a good job with that one bit where he says, what are you going to do? But uh, it's weird how little that's involved in the match. It's not bad. It just, like the previous match, it's not something we remember a whole lot. Mm-hmm. It's well-worked, but there's just not a lot there for me. 
yeah, this was all right. They managed some good intensity throughout, and I thought that Taylor had some good sneaky heel spots, particularly his attempts at ambushes on Z-Man. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that even though he retreated from the match a lot, he kept them short, so they didn't break the flow of the match very much. Right. Nice punches on his part, too. Yeah. Z-Man is very capable, but he needs a lot more variety in his holds. He went back to that side headlock spot a lot. Yeah. And he doesn't really do much to make his holds interesting. He is very agile, though, and he used that for some nice spots throughout the match. I think I would have liked this better if they cut some of the holds out of the middle. They slowed the match down a bit too much. Going back to our comments on like them using the computer bit, that would have been a great way to use the no DQ step is, like you said, Z-Man comes around to get at him when he's going to get advice, and York just beans him with the computer. You can't DQ her for it in this match, so she doesn't have to be sneaky about it. Yeah, exactly. Still, camera shots of a depowered computer aside, this was a respectable match, at least. Mm-hmm. If you think of like the sort of cliche of what late 80s, early 90s wrestlers look like and work, I think they definitely fit that mold really well. Yes. The problem is they never, for the most part, get past that. Mm-hmm. You want to start there. You want to have a good foundation. And then you want to find your niche, You know, like the rock finding the rock persona. Right. Ted DiBiase going from a fairly generic face in the South to being the million dollar man. You need that extra step to go above and beyond. And then for the most part, they never really get there. And this match is kind of an example of how they can get close to that. But when they need the extra step, they just don't quite have it. Yeah. I think Taylor does a little bit better from a personality standpoint when he's a heel like this. Yes, for sure. I, I feel like if he was able to stick with this gimmick for a long time, then you might really, really see it start to click. But yeah. he, he only gets so long with his gimmicks, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's a WCW thing. Yeah. That you keep changing people out so often. We're saying this kind of often tonight. These are some very solid and reliable mid-card guys that just don't have anything that takes them to that next level. But the, the show kind of seems to be built around that kind of match, which is yeah. a little bit odd. But, I mean, at the very least, you're getting reliable matches out of it, so... So far, the field of the show is, these guys are interesting. You should keep watching our shows and see where this goes. Yeah. yeah. Not here's the big payoff to this story or here's what this big angle. Yeah. Going back a bit, the introduction of Terry Taylor as the first member of the York Foundation came at the clash just before this show. He's a match with Ricky Morton, and they tease that one of them is going to join the York Foundation. And then they kind of... And they automatically just kind of announce it during the match, which is weird. Oh, that's weird. I mean, he gets help beating Morton. It's not a big reveal, like they play it off, like the lead up to. Hmm. So I mentioned that because the York Foundation, as you said before, is going to grow over the next coming months to include Tommy Rich and Richard Morton. That is, yeah, that is a little odd. Go back to our first match, two thirds of the six man tag champs would turn heel and, in fact, be part of the final six man tag champ in history. The York Foundation were the last one to hold it, so it was Taylor, Richard Morton, and Thomas Rich. At least they're a regular team at that point. Sure, sure. Speaking of the world six-man tag team champions, Z-Man would get to hold the title once as well. Okay. If you want to get an idea of how they treated the world six-man titles, uh, Z-Man's tag partners would be Dustin Rhodes and Big Josh. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of those things is good anyway. Yeah. I can kind of get the story thing with maybe Z-Man and Dustin being yeah. the young, good-looking, you know, faces of the company or want to be faces of the company, but 
Then there's the guy's lumberjack. I mean, that's okay, but... <laughs> beat, beat, beat me to it. Beat me to it. <laughs> I know. And by the way, I, I can find pictures of them holding the belts, but not oh, okay. more than um, Rich and JYD as well. At least that means the belts exist. <laughs> yes. At some point, they definitely existed. JR talks up Eligante and says that the fans have grown to love him. Dusty says that El Guiante is on the verge of being one of the greatest stars in WCW. Then we get vaguely bullfighter-ish music, and Paul E. dangerously walks out in a matador-ish outfit with a red cape and big sombrero. Paul says that he works undercover for immigration, and all the illegal aliens in the crowd are under arrest tonight. It doesn't improve from there, so I'm not playing this segment. Agreed. Paul welcomes Eligante out. He's very tall. Paul insults him for a while and tries to get him to charge at the cape, and explains that Eligante is a special referee in a cage match between Flair and Sting, and he thinks Eligante will steal the title from Ric Flair. Paul hits Eligante with his hat, so Eligante gets mad and slams him, by which I mean he picks him up and kind of drops him. Yes. Eligante puts on the sombrero and tells the camera, you never hit my face. This was an awful segment and could have easily been done without all the offensive jokes and costuming. Agreed. It isn't even about Flair's match tonight. This didn't even need to be on the show. No. They're not talking about war games. No. They're talking about a future Flair versus Sting match. It's like, why is this here? Yeah, for sure. I can only assume that it's basically just here to be like, hey guys, Eligante is here, because that'll be important later. Right. Is it either doing like Mexican stereotyping? What country are they going for with this? Yeah, yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's like they're doing a generalized Hispanicness, which is like ultra, ultra offensive. Because to be clear, he's from Argentina. Yes. Yes, he is. So it's not it's not Spain and it's not Mexico. They are different places. It's a bizarre and extremely stupid segment. Yes. It's a shame because I I like Polly dangerously slash Paul Heyman, and it's just what are you doing here? Yeah. We cut back to Tony who is with Hiro Matsuda and the Great Muda. Tony says that the WCW Rolling Thunder Tour 91 is starting in March and will make a stop in Tokyo's Egg Dome. All of those names are awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Matsuda and Tony advertise the show, and Matsuda says that with 50,000 people behind him, Muda will best sting at the show. Muda just stands there the whole time with his eyes closed until Tony is wrapping up, then sprays green mist and glares at the camera. This was a lot of advertising speak, but was effective. Muda looked intimidating, and it got me kind of interested. Would it have been a better advertisement if it was an, an old man from the campfire explaining how the show works? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, good, just to clarify. I was worried our standards are starting to get lowered, but I think we're good. The logo for the Japan Super Show comes up, and we cut back to the ring. Our seventh match is Stan the Lariat Hansen versus Big Van Vader in a return grudge match. Referee for this match is Randy Anderson, and we're in ring one again for this match. Back in October of 1990, in Japan, specifically all Japan, they held an interpromotional match between Stan Hansen and Vader, which is known for being a very hard-hitting match. In fact, that is the match where Hansen hits Vader in the face and uh, partially knocked from his eyes loose. Oh, God. Vader, just being an insane b- of course, powered through all that as much as you possibly can and continued the match. He just, like, pops his eye back in and goes mm-hmm. on with the match, which tells you just about everything you need to know about Vader. Yes. <laughs> Nothing's going to slow him down. 
Oh my gosh. Obviously, both of them needed time to recover from that. Fader slightly more than Stan in this case. So it was a big hit for WSW to host this match uh, a few months later. I should also note that Vader is currently the IWGP heavyweight champion. But it's not mentioned here, and he's not wearing the belt for some reason. That, that's odd, yeah. Yeah. Hansen comes out with his bull rope and his traditional massive disgusting wad of tobacco. Yay. Vader comes out with his awesome, awesome, awesome helmet. <laughs> also awesome. A huge black helmet with horns and glowing red eyes and spiked shoulder pads attached. He roars to the crowd as he takes the helmet off and sets it down, and the helmet sprays steam. Love it. <laughs> I love how he builds up to it, too. Yes. He, like, prepares the crowd for the steam coming. It's like, this is going to be awesome, folks. Oh, Make sure on, you pay attention. On, on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, Vader is in more of a luchador-style mask tonight, rather than his usual sort of face straps. Yeah, that's the transition he went through when leaving Japan later on. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he's Big Van Vader when he worked with New Japan. When he would leave a bit later, they apparently had some sort of issue with his naming. They're worried about him trying to make money off the name they used. That's why they changed the man they call Vader or this Vader. The big mask was part of that early look that sort of goes away later. <laughs> Hansen leaps at Vader while he's still on the ramp, but Vader drags him out and batters him with punches and headbutts. Hansen holds his own with kicks, chops, and a lariat, and shoves Vader into the ring for more strikes. Vader knocks Hansen flat on a charge with an extremely solid clothesline. Oh, yeah. And earns two off headbutts and punches, and a corner splash into an elbow drop. JR says he's not sure how long these guys could go hitting each other this hard, and Dusty notes that he's seen them go 30 minutes in Japan. Vader throws Hansen outside and hits his jumping double forearm from the apron. As you put it, the refrigerator spot. <laughs> I love that spot. Back in, Hansen earns two counts off a belly-to-back suplex and a second rope elbow drop, and they brawl outside by the announce tables, hitting each other with chairs and crates, as JR and Dusty get very nervous, and JR implies that he's wet himself. Yes, he does. <laughs> More brawling outside and inside the ring, and they trade punches and headbutts and brush Anderson away multiple times until Hansen throws Anderson through the ropes, and he disqualifies both men. Wait, this wasn't no DQ? Nope. What? <laughs> Correct. You have a grudge match, meant as a follow-up, to a match where someone literally got their eye knocked out of their skull, uh-huh. and is not no DQ. Correct. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm glad that didn't happen here. Yes. But you can't do a match as a reference to a ridiculously violent match and have DQ rules. Yeah. It'd be like if they um, brought Big Foley and Terry Funk over following the King of the Death match mm-hmm. final, and then had him wrestle like a singles match and like push the ref one to get disqualified. Yes. You'd be like, huh. Vader climbs up top and hits double forearms to Hansen, then tries a splash on the map, but Hansen rolls out of the way. Hansen hits his football tackle and chokes Vader with the bull rope as the bell keeps ringing. Hansen drags Vader out of the ring by the bull rope, but Vader gets the rope, chokes Hansen with it, and drags him up the ramp. They trade rope shots and punches all the way up the ramp and vanish into the back. Thoughts on this one? It was a very strong, but also very stiff match. You want to tell someone, like, what, like, legit toughness you need for wrestling, like, taking hits and going back from them? This is definitely one to show them. The shots are really tough. They're really snug, as they say. But I never felt that it was too dangerous. They weren't, like, dropping to on their head. It's all very, sort of, as much as you can control... 
throwing your forearm in a guy's face, they do it. <laughs> I'm sure they were sore as hell for like a week after that match, but I, I never felt it was an actual danger, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. They kept the story and the, the advantage going back and forth. So it could be Vader in charge, then Hanson in charge. It never was never one-sided. They both felt like tough guys, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It felt like they were constantly jockeying for position and authority in this match. The WDQ finish is definitely disappointing for me, especially given that it followed a match that was no DQ and did nothing with it, for the most part. I will say, though, given how this match played out, it's not one of the ones but automatically disqualifies it from match of the night for me. Hmm. Which I know a lot of those do. Kind of felt they were going that way anyways, honestly. I didn't seem like they were going to just like have a pinfall in this match. I figured they'd do something like that. This Less of a match and more of a very choreographed, dangerous bar fight, I would say. <laughs> so, a DQ finish, like, as disappointing as it is, I don't think it hurts the match that much for me. I did like seeing Vader do his top rope clothesline after the match was actually over which legit seemed to impress JR, like he'd never seen it before. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm significantly less positive on this one, I think, than you are. I found this really underwhelming. Don't get me wrong, the hits were stiff as anything, mm-hmm. and they gave their all for the duration, but this was really, really short sure. and had an extremely disappointing ending to me. I get what they were going for, that these two are too out of control and endangering everyone in the area, so Anderson feels he has to call it. But I don't think it gets to the point it needs to get to before that happens. Heck, they're even back in the ring when he calls it. If they were battering each other around the commentators and crew and maybe Dusty or JR got clubbed by mistake or something, I'd find it more plausible. But as it is, given the legend and horror of their prior match, this falls far short of the chaos it needed to get to. To be fair, they were swinging chairs. They were, but he doesn't DQ them then. I know. He DQs them when they're nice and gently back in the ring and just fighting each other. Well, he, he because they're both they're both shoving him and throwing him around. Yeah, yeah it's just it, it felt really like the wrong way to do that ending. For me, this felt like the appetizer to a much much more complete match down the line, which would be fine if this were a TV match, but it's a pay per view, so that's mm-hmm. when we should be getting the more complete match. So it was a good start, but given the build up and the legend of their prior match, this wasn't enough i think for me i i went in expecting them to just slam each other and punch each other and knock it around i didn't expect necessarily a full match and a pinfall believe me i would have liked to seen vader do his moonsault and have, have a regular match hmm. but i think this gives to given the hands involved and he's it's kind of his thing i think it works for me more than you it's kind of like a six arcade where they have the uh street fight with big bubba or what his name was that at the time yeah and, and Ronnie Garvin. Garvin, yeah yeah I, I can appreciate that for what it is, I think. And mm-hmm. just, just different opinions on that. Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't mind the DQ finish as much if I felt like, oh man, this really, really, really got like crazy wild. And well, it is crazy wild. That's when he does the DQ. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I feel like the match calms down and then he goes and DQs them. And I get that they're shoving him, but it's like, they were moments ago actually using weapons on each other. Right, right. So why didn't you DQ them then? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, at that, well, at that point, he's probably just too scared. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair point. But. They're throwing chairs at each other for an actual match, and you're like, stopping the match. I would see him being annoyed at that. Yeah, it, it just it ended up kind of underwhelming to me, but I, I do see your point on it, and I do agree. Like, what we get of this match is pretty good. 
It's just that I feel like, for me, the ending does hurt it a lot. Obviously, it's one of those things where if you can, you know, take matches from the time they took place and move them a different time, that'd be something you could do with this match. Like, if this match was 1996, or 97 even, and it happened in WCW at whatever the equivalent show would have been at that point, they would have started with Rainier Anderson and would have moved, shoved him and, like, knocked him out. And then, you know, Nick Patrick would have run in and they would have, like, clotheslined him or slammed him or something. They would take down, like, four or five referees. Like, the last one left in the building would have called him. And I don't know if that's better or worse, but this is kind of the most maybe they thought they could do here in this environment. Yeah. Just feels like, especially since we had a no DQ match that didn't use the no DQ step earlier, maybe you just switch the stipulations. Oh, believe me. I, 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 yeah. The <laughs> placement know. is definitely notable for me. Mm-hmm. They follow this the Z-Man match and then this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It feels like we had the people in the wrong matches. <laughs> I think what they give us is good, so I, I can at least make peace with how it is. I definitely would have liked a 12-minute match without a DQ finish, but I'll take this what it is. Okay. Oddly enough, this does not lead to a rematch at the WWE New Japan Super Show. That was kind of my thought going, like, oh, we're going to DQ finish, and they're going to wrestle next. Yeah, I would have sworn that that was where that was heading. Incorrect. So I don't know why. I did note, uh, going research of this, that the original match was a cross-promotional match, because Stan Hansen is the Big Scary Gaijin of All Japan Pro Wrestling, and Vader is the Big Scary Gaijin of New Japan Pro Wrestling, <laughs> who alternate between working together and being fierce rivals, <laughs> depending what time history you're, you're at. I guess maybe if you tried to book a cross-promotional match involving a third party on a WCW cross-promotional show, that'd be really complicated. That, that, that could be, yeah. Believe me, I wish there was another WCW match like this where they come right away. Like, if Super Brawl had them at a rematch or something, that'd be really cool, but fortunately, they don't. That's so weird, because it feels like that's building towards that. It does, yes. And this was good enough that I would love to see a rematch that goes more complete. I agree. But apparently to do that, I need to look backwards in time instead of forwards in time. <laughs> yeah. That's too bad. As far as Vader goes, he would wrestle the Super Show. Vader has a tag match at that show, which sounds pretty cool, actually, to be fair. Okay. We're seeing it with Bam Bam Bigelow. Ooh. Very intimidating tag team. For that that sounds for sure. pretty awesome. Yeah. I hope they have a stereo moonsault spot. Ooh, that would be great. That'd be great. Vader would unfortunately lose his IWGP title in March back over in New Japan. As far as Broken WCW, he would come back for Halloween Havoc for a match. Okay. Hanson's story is a bit interesting as well. Hanson would stick around for off and on dates. He worked in All Japan mostly, but also worked WCW. Then they started an angle where a trio of wrestlers, led by Black Bart, called the Desperados, would start going to Old West towns looking for Stan Hansen. I'm not sure if they wanted to fight him or recruit him. It was never quite clear. They're definitely looking for him. Apparently, back over in Japan, Hansen saw that and said, nah. <laughs> and he never came back to WCW. So the angle meant to set up his return to WCW drove him away from WCW. Correct. <laughs> that is, is that not the most WCW thing ever? <laughs> it's, that's got to be up there, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. JR says it's time to hear more about Super Bowl 91, but it's just the same fanfare as last time. Yeah, I got, they, haven't, they haven't booked a match yet. Yeah, I don't know what more he thought he was going to tell us, but okay. JR talks up Super Brawl a bit and says that Vader and Hanson are still fighting in the back. 
He brings up the upcoming Luger versus Spivey match for the U.S. title, and Dusty says it'll be a tremendous match, but is still distracted by Vader and Hanson fighting off-camera. Dusty eventually says this is Spivey's chance to take a step up the ladder by claiming the title. So, our eighth match is Dangerous Dan Spivey versus The Total Package Lex Luger for Luger's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. And we're back in ring two for this one. Back at Circuit 1990, we got the reunion of the skyscrapers, which uh, was thankfully short-lived because that was a terrible match. (laughs) But an awesome promo. It was an awesome promo. Curiously enough, so at that point, both of them are faces, although kind of on the edge because they're scary, dangerous people, but I guess you're supposed to like them. They would both go back to being Eagles, but then like two, three months following that show. Vicious would obviously, as we will see later, be part of the Four Horsemen, and Dan Spivey would go after Lex's U.S. Championship. He attacks him on multiple occasions, trying to get his match, which leads to a very odd bit. So on the previous clash, that happens in January, they have a match between Sting and Lex Luger versus Doom for the tag titles. During the match, while he's on the apron waiting for his tag, Lex is attacked on the floor by Spivey. The referee is, I think, supposed to not be aware of it, but he is definitely aware of it. Okay. He gets beat up a bit, and then Spivey leaves, I guess, satisfied that he's done his bad deed for the day. And Luger eventually gets back on the ring apron, you know, injured, but recovering himself. And then matching the DQ, because they throw Sting over the top rope. So it was going to be a DQ anyway. Yes. But they didn't just end it in a DQ when Luger was being blatantly attacked. Correct. That's weird. <laughs> like it's, I think maybe the ref's not supposed to be aware of it, but he right, was. But who cares? It. It's you know it's going to be a DQ anyway, so just go ahead and do it because you accidentally caught sight. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. That's bizarre. This is made in the match, but I feel like I should point this out. You remember the whole story with Rick Steiner, where he was given the uh, Florida Heavyweight Title from um, his partner. Yes, and then they eventually stripped him of it because he never actually won in the first place. Yeah. So back in NWA Florida territory. They held a tournament, Shock of All Shocks, <laughs> and Dan Spivey actually won it. He was the initial champion after Rick Steiner was stripped of it for not actually being champion. Oh, okay. He loses it, and then he gained it back. He would hold the championship between November 1989 and April of 91. So he, again, another person who was actual champion on this show, and not, not with his belt. Okay, yeah. At least this one's a little more excusable because it's- It's just a regional title, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he doesn't look as cool if he's like, comes out with a title belt and goes, I want a title belt. True. I, I, mean, I mean, another one. <laughs> but yeah. He's trying to jump from one right to 50. Yes. For the, for the States. <laughs> Spivey hails from Tampa. Hey, neighbor. <laughs> he gives his usual excellent crazy eyes on the way to the ring. Mm-hmm. As Luger comes to the ring, only half of his pyro works. Oh. Dusty mentions that a new belt has been made, and Nikita Koloff has come in to give it to the winner. We get a nice shot of the current title belt as Nick Patrick holds it up before the match. They're evenly matched to start. Spivey cheap shots Luger on a corner break, but Luger hits a back body drop, shoulder blocks, and a screaming clothesline. Then blocks an atomic drop and hits a bellied back suplex for two. JR talks about their shared football backgrounds. Spivey lands some strikes, but Luger knocks him down with punches and a hip-lock takedown, then tries a crossbody. But Spivey ducks, and Luger spills over both sets of ropes into ring one. 
I was not expecting Lex Luger to be the first guy to take a ring-to-ring bump on this show. That was surprising, yeah. <laughs> Spivey suplexes Luger back into ring one and takes over. Spivey Tombstone Piledriver gets two, and he gets more two counts off a big left hook into a neckbreaker, kick to the ribs into a DDT, and a huge clothesline on a corner-to-corner whip. He tries the corner-to-corner clothesline again, but Luger dodges and rolls him up for two. Nice timing on that. Luger sells very loudly on Spivey Strikes, but blocks the suplex and hits his own to huge cheers, but he's too tired to cover. Spivey gets more two counts with an unusual rotating top rope elbow drop, rotating neck breaker, big boot, and pile driver, and works a figure four neck lock for a bit. Luger sells his own comeback, (laughs) but Spivey gets two off a belly-to-belly suplex and makes crazy eyes at the camera on a chin lock as Patrick checks the arm and Luger keeps it up on the third try. Luger finally manages to dump Spivey on the top rope on a charge. Luger comeback builds to a second rope diving clothesline, and he roars to the crowd. Luger power slam, and the crowd is roaring back. We cut to the crowd as Spivey apparently throws Luger off so forcefully he spills through the ropes, but Luger tries a sunset flip back in. Spivey keeps his balance and slugs Luger, but both go down on a double clothesline. They trade blows and collide on a whip to go down, and Luger drags himself to his feet on the apron and climbs up top. Spivey power slams him down, but Luger rolls through for the three count and the win. Spivey is distraught in the ring, and Luger celebrates with his current belt as he goes up the ramp to get it replaced. It's kind of weird that they didn't just take the old belt away during the match. Uh, I will agree with that, yes. Yeah. Thoughts on the match? This one actually surprised me quite a bit, to be honest with you. Um, Obviously, I've gotten good liking of Luger seeing his early stuff now, so it's not like I expected a bad match from Luger. But Spivey's kind of a weird one because he's not had a lot of really good showings mm-hmm. for me. No, he's never been bad, but he's never had a like big surprising show of a match. He was clearly not the bad part of the Skyscraper's performance that one time. Yes. I, I recall liking him in a couple of years ago, the Wrestle War 89 odd main event. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I agree. It's We haven't really seen him as like the standout singles performer type of right. person yet. Hmm. But it doesn't really surprise me because it was not stronger than I was expecting. Like with previous matches, specifically the last match with Vader and Hanson, I thought they kept the pace and momentum nice and even. They kept moving the whole time. They had some parts where they're selling, but they didn't ever slow it down. They could drag the match at all. Mm-hmm. I found it kind of funny to see Biva use the Tombstone pile driver. by the way. Yes. Which JR calls the inverted pile driver because now that the Undertaker doesn't work for us, we can't acknowledge that he exists. Yes. <laughs> it would be more ironic if Spivey was actually in that match last year. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I probably pulled from it. I forgot about that, yeah. <laughs> the thing with Luger, you talked before, he breaks a very good heel. Like, he has this sort of natural heel tendency. But this one shows, like with him and Flair, he actually makes a really good face in peril. He does. He does. Definitely. I was actually kind of surprised what he did in this scenario. As, as much as I will make fun of the Luger selling, mm-hmm. he actually does a very good job making you know that people have inflicted pain upon him Yeah, and selling the injuries. Mm-hmm. I was impressed by how well he did because Spivey managed to do a good story of tracking the neck and back mm-hmm. and Luger actually, actually fighting from beneath was nice. Yes. I would have liked a more conclusive finish, but I got the idea that they were trying to 
save more matches between the two of them by having the sort of roll-up counter finish. Yeah, and, and you've just spent the entire match building up Spivey. Like, this is clearly the let's demonstrate what Dan Spivey can do against Lex Luger match. Yeah. So you don't want to then have Luger turn it around and actually get a really, really strong-looking pin on him. Yeah, I wouldn't have had him, like, boom with the torture rack. But yeah, this, this way surprised me a bit. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I really like Dan Spivey here. He puts on an impressive and varied showing of power moves. Yeah. It's a good showcase for what he can do, and he comes off as an interesting and talented power wrestler. He mixes some very good strikes in as well. I think his holds were a little bit weaker, but there's still some surprises in there, like that figure four neck lock. Mm -hmm. The flaw in this match really is that it feels too one-sided. Once Luger spills to the other ring early on, which was a great spot, he gets very little offense until the ending. Mm. It makes it feel almost like a squash match for Spivey at times, except that Luger does still get strong kickouts and looks good with what little offense that he gets. You know, thinking about it, it's almost the prototype, no pun intended, for the uh, John Cena match. You tend to wrestle a lot. Because he gets totally on, then tries to go for a big move and you counter him, you control, then he hits a sequence and wins. Yeah. The ending sequence brought things back more in balance, and it helped a lot. I liked the actual ending counter. It's not what I expected out of a Luger match. Mm -hmm. So this was quite entertaining. It just needed, I felt like, a little bit more Luger, but without taking away from Spivey. You know, add a minute or two and give Luger a couple more bursts of more extended offense, Mm -hmm. and I think I'd like this even more. No, yeah. Fun match, just a little unbalanced, I think. No, I, I can see that. That was surprisingly good. Yeah. We go to Tony, who is with Nikita Koloff and WCW representative Grizzly Smith, the latter of which has a briefcase and a really awesome name. <laughs> Luger shows up and hugs Koloff. Tremendous victory for the total package Lex Luger, who will soon be joining Tony Schiavone for this, this very special ceremony. All right, Jim Dusty, thank you very much. You're right, a very special ceremony, and we are here with Grizzly Smith, representative of World Championship Wrestling, of course, former U.S. heavyweight champion Nikita Koloff, and we are going to present right now to Lex Luger, $20,000 gold U.S. heavyweight title belt. Here's Lex Luger, congratulations for a great win, and to make the presentation right now, the former champion Nikita Koloff. I just want to say that uh, it was a... Uh, a pleasure watching that match. I, I congratulate you on a, on a great victory. I've got something here for you, Lester. Lester. I know you've been waiting for this. I take a, a, a lot of pride and a great pleasure in, in giving this to you. Olaf gives it to Luger, all right, right in the face. Right in the face. He hit Luger right in the face with that new belt. What? It, why? You ask me why? I'll tell you why. For two years, I sit in my gym in North Carolina and I watch these titles change hands back and forth. And I said to myself, I said, Nikita, there is one title you have not had around your waist. Well, you know what, Tony Schiavone? I talked to the championship committee and you know what they said to me? They said, Nikita, they said, you have been retired for two years. You have to prove to us, prove to us that you need that you need a match against the world champion. Prove to us, prove to you, 
I'll prove something to you. You know what I have to prove to you? There's the proof right now. Lex Luger, what better way than to prove that to Lex Luger, the man who stole the U.S. title from me four years ago. So you know what? You know what? You know what? You shut your mouth. You shut your mouth. Hey, Lex Luger, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the belt back where it belongs to Nakita Kolo. Let's go back to the ring. Great segment. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time you can see the heel turns coming a mile away, but Koloff was so quick about his strike that I didn't expect it one bit. He doesn't quite explain in his promo fully, but I gathered the idea is that he wants the U.S. title from Luger in part as revenge and in part because of the old U.S. champion as number one contender for the world title thing. Yeah. He's extremely intense in his promo, even by Nikita Koloff standards, taking off his suit coat and shirt and tie as he raves about the disrespect he feels he's been given, and ending by flexing and roaring. Yeah. Great visual emphasis there, I thought, of him coming back to fight, like literally taking off the things that indicate his retirement. Mm, I can see that. I adored this segment. That was excellently done. Oh, yeah, it was really good. Um, It had pretty high standards to meet because we have the bit with Terry Funk from the first Russell War. His Kanye moment of constantly interrupting the promo. <laughs> and that one was obviously a bit more telegraphed because it built and built in tension. Whereas this is a much more of a sudden turn, which is nice. It's nice to hear the angry, angry cookie monster voice again. Yes, yes. Oh, isn't it great? <laughs> one of the greatest fake voices ever. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. It's really nice how he builds to it where he keeps you completely off guard and just slowly pulls out the belt and shows it to Luger, which is what you would do mm-hmm. if you were going to hand over a belt to someone. And then just is like, oh, I'm in completely the right position and his guard's completely down. I think I'll smash him in the face with the title now. <laughs> it's like it goes off exactly how you think it would go off if you were really trying to ambush someone to attack them that way. Yeah, it's, it's such a great someone betrays someone else moment. You almost assume it's got to be Sting there. <laughs> that's true because he's always being betrayed by who he loves and <laughs> befriended that's let's be fair though it, it takes much less effort to betray sting he's that's mu- true. much more gullible than luger <laughs> that is very true <laughs> the thing with luger and the u.s title now with the new belt is he was a fighting champion but curiously he never has title defenses after this on pay-per-view oh weird on super brawl he's in a tag match where he's still champion and then Stuff happens, Great America Bash, we'll discuss when we cover that show involving him, but he's telling a different title while still U.S. champion. Hmm. Which I think he had quite a lot, by the way. Yes, yeah. He's a lot of times where he's U.S. champion, oh, I'll take a title shot too, then fine. I mean, I guess that is the thing they build up about the title. Yeah, though with that, I don't know if it's so much the title gives him the more contendership, or just him being Lex Luger Fair makes point. him the contender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of even in that regards. Now, here's the actual weird thing, too. So, there's no title offenses on pay-per-view before the title is being stripped due to not to complicate stuff. The feud with him and Koloff did go on. Okay. But there's no match in the pay-per-view with them. Weird. Yeah. They fought a lot on TV. They have these pull-apart balls. And they have matches on TV. But yeah, there's no pay-per-view match between the two of them at all. How did they not do something with this? As a, as a big... Oh, well, that's strange. 
basically what happens, without getting too much in the story, Sting and Luger are in a tag team match on the next show. And Koloff interferes because part of the feud against Luger. And that segues into him feuding with Sting. Okay. <laughs> Sting and Koloff have pay-per-view matches, but not never Koloff and Luger. Oh, that's that's sad. I mean, it, it's cool to that Sting and Koloff get one, but... Oh, yeah. That's... That's really sad, because this is, like, such a terrific build-up yeah. that you would think, naturally, that they're going to do something with it. Yeah. Like, imagine if that happened with Terry Funk. Like, Terry Funk doesn't get a towel shot the next show. You're like, yeah. oh, that seems like all a waste. That would be completely insane. Yes. We're talking about the Super Show a lot. Luger is not wrestling on Super Show, because apparently his contract did not require him to. <laughs> Sting does, and other people will do, but yeah, his contract didn't require it, and he didn't do it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Now he does work the Super Show next year, okay. but this year, this year as U.S. Champion, he's not wrestling in New Japan. Eh, don't make him, I guess not. Yeah, no. Spivey, who's kind of forgotten all this because of the heel turn and everything. Yeah, yeah. He does rebound a bit. He goes back to All Japan Pro Wrestling, working part time there with Hanson, where they win the tag titles together. Okay. Before Hanson famously exits the company because he doesn't want to involve Desperados. There is a handful of matches in the weeks following that where the two of them are a tag team. I don't know if they have the belts there, but they, they are a tag team established in WCW. Okay. So you get some Spivey Hanson in WCW if you find the right shows. I could see that being a pretty good tag team. Yeah. Spivey definitely has the endurance that Hanson does not. Yeah. Our ninth match is the fabulous Freebirds, Jimmy Jam Garvin and Michael P.S. Hayes, with Diamond Dallas Page, the Diamond Dolls, and Big Daddy Dink, versus Doom, Ron Simmons, and Butch Reed, with Teddy Long for Doom's WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this match is Randy Anderson. Earlier last year, Doom became tag champions and had a very strong, fairly dominant run with them. Last of matches of that. Mm-hmm. However, they started to into problems coming around this time. They haven't lost a match, but they had some hiccups in their teaming. So there's tension in the ranks, as they mentioned in the earlier promo. And so the big story here is that Doom are dominant champions, but are they a successful team at this point? Mm. Whereas the Freebirds, no matter what happens, are always a very cohesive unit. Yes. We are in ring one for this match. The Freebirds have quite an entourage this time, as JR notes. They come out with DDP and the Diamond Dolls, and DDP now has a fur coat. It looks a tad weird with the jeans. A bit, yeah. DDP grabs a microphone and says, good God, roughly 8 million times, <laughs> yes. as he claims the Freebirds will be the next champs and says he can't be everywhere at once and he has to take care of business, so he's bringing out his road boss, Big Daddy Dink. I don't know what happened between his earlier promo and now, but DDP turned into an infinite catchphrase loop. <laughs> yeah, he does a bit. Dink, who is Sir Oliver Humperdink, dressed like a biker, has a couple women with him as well. So there's like a battle bowl's worth of people in the ring just from one team. <laughs> yeah, basically. Doom, coming down with just Teddy Long, must feel kind of gypped. JR talks about the tension between Doom recently and the rumors that they might split, but says that they seem to have worked out their tension. Long looks at the camera to cut a promo on Paige, even though Paige is standing in the same ring. That's a little weird. Yeah. Long says the free girls will lose because homie don't play that. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the living color and all that. DDP and the ladies make their exit. I do have to note about WCW being up to date on trends. 
the women are clearly going for a Robert Palmer look with the sunglasses and the dresses, mm-hmm. even though the Addicted to Love video from 1986. That's still closer than most wrestling references? Yeah, yeah. It's only a few years off. <laughs> do you have any idea why uh, DDP leaves here? I do not have anything on that. It felt very strange. It felt like, oh, they're setting up something where he'll return later or something like that, but he doesn't until the end of the match. It's not like he becomes involved in a sneak attack or anything like that. So it threw me. I guess they want him for the Freebird, but they also don't really need him for the Freebirds. They want him as a manager, so they're using that as sort of a segue for the whole Diamond Dolls thing and you know, guess, bringing maybe, Diamond yeah. Stud and everything, maybe. But it's not clear, yeah. By the way, I, I failed to mention earlier DDP's amazing diamond-studded DDP rings. Mm, yes, true. He's wearing. <laughs> Simmons and Hayes start, as JR says that Simmons is Burt Reynolds' favorite wrestler. Good to know. Simmons overwhelms Hayes with strength as Hayes alleges hair-pulling, annoying Simmons. Simmons batters Hayes and hits a spine buster for two, but Hayes catches them with a swift jab on a charge and hits a bulldog for two. Simmons whips Hayes to the ropes for a power slam, and Garvin tries a top rope dive, but Simmons catches him and power slams him for one. I was a bit confused about why that pin was counted, but I think Garvin does actually maybe tag Hayes on the whip. I think he does, yeah. The Freebirds retreat, and Dink tells them to calm down. Back in, Garvin challenges Reed, and Simmons tags Reed in. Reed shrugs off a Garvin flurry and hits a big clothesline, but Garvin gets a sunset flip for two. Tag to Hayes and blind tag back to Garvin, as Reed presses Hayes high, then presses Garvin high when he tries an ambush, only to get punched by Hayes to knock Garvin on top for one. Weirdly complicated there. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird the blind tag didn't really seem to work, but then it did after the fact, yeah. Reed gets two off a double underhook suplex, and Simmons is in as Doom takes over for the heelishness with double teams and tricking Hayes into distracting the ref for them so they can beat Garvin up outside. Back in, Garvin finally manages a DDT on Reed, but is two days to cover or tag, so Reed tags Simmons in, and Simmons gets two counts off an awesome spine buster and a high-angle power slam as Hayes breaks it up both times. Dink gets on the apron, and Reed runs in while Dink argues with Anderson. Long throws Reed brass knucks, and Simmons holds Hayes, but Hayes ducks and Reed accidentally nails Simmons. Hayes fights Reed as Dink pushes Garvin onto Simmons for the three count and the win. The Freebirds take their belts to celebrate with DDP, Dink, and the Diamond Dolls. Doom argue with each other, and with Long. Simmons pushes Long, so Reed decks him, then gets the brass knucks from Long, and uses them to beat up Simmons while Long cheers him on. Long even lays in some stomps himself while Reed spits on Simmons. Reed says, that's what happens to people that cross them. Long says, it's Simmons' fault that they lost the titles, and Simmons will dearly pay. Thoughts on this one? I'm surprised you didn't put in a homie note play that line for the third time. It, it is a little bit, yeah. That was surprising. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was a good final showing for Doom, <laughs> although not their greatest performance per se. The person I think that really comes out the strongest here is Ron Simmons. Oh, God, yeah. Because his whole thing here is definitely, he has raw but very safe power. Yes. He can catch you and throw you around, but he'd never, he'd never going to like drop you in your head or anything. You're definitely going to feel being body slammed by him or press slammed by him, but it's never unsafe. Yes. The favorite thing is tricky because they're trying to work both face and heel throughout the match. Mm-hmm. The dynamic of this match is interesting because Doom is a really good guy, team here. It's kind of a heel versus heel, 
yeah. match, just the Doom people kind of like and the Freebirds they kind of dislike more. Yeah, it's conflicting for sure. Yeah. The personalities here. Uh, I did like the finish. It was, it was pretty creative. Although it is worth knowing this is the second time they've done a version of this finish with the Freebird, no less. Because <laughs> remember how Hayes won the US title? Yes. Hayes was famously pushed onto the pin. It's just funny because there's. We do these shows year to year for series. Yes. And you wouldn't think of it as continuity when a full, like, actual two years goes by and these things. But yeah, there we are. Yep. I'm in agreement. I think this was short, but pretty good. It was a little bit strange with the heel versus heel storyline, but it was kind of funny to see both teams kind of trying to out-cheat each other. Yes. And I think I would have actually liked if that was an even bigger part of the match than it was. Hmm. It might have worked a little bit better if the Freebirds managed to cheat their way into a more solid advantage before Doom started cheating too, though. Mm. Doom mostly dominate, so it does feel a little funny when they bother doing anything nefarious. Still, heels taking shortcuts is a standard. Right. And I think they even called that out with Reed on an earlier Wrestle War, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Against uh, Ranger Ross, was it? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Doom had some good, hard power moves, and the Freebirds did some fun switch-outs and tricks, but this just kind of just got going when it suddenly went to the finish to start off the Doom breakup angle. I think it would have been stronger if it went a bit longer first. Still, kind of a fun match with a weird but neat dynamic. I really liked Simmons' part. I thought he did mm-hmm. the power control thing really well. Yeah. The turning after the match is a little interesting because... The guy who messes up the interference is Butch Reed. Right. And he's mad at Ron Simmons. And I know he's a bad guy, obviously. He's not posted in solely. Makes sense. But yeah, it's kind of... I get it when you clarified it, but that's more of him pushing the manager than anything else. But yeah, it's just... It's kind of funny. Like, I can't believe you let me punch you in the face. <laughs> yeah. Such a loser. It's kind of a combination of a bunch of different things. Like you said, it is a bit of the standard heelish don't take responsibility. Yeah. And you need... Read to clearly be in the wrong so that the crowd will start treating Simmons like a face. Agreed. Yeah. That probably is part of it. But then, yeah, I think probably you can look at it as the reason it turns to violence mm. right away is that Simmons pushes long, making it clear he's not going to go along with them trying to lay it on him. That, I think, sets it off more fully. I didn't mind it, but yeah, I can see where you're saying, wait, Reed's the one that screwed up. You guys realize something with these shows. The previous Russell War, we had the ending of the Skyscraper story, because they're yes. basically all gone, and Teddy Long uniting with Doom, and a year later we have Doom being broken up. That's that's interesting, yeah. It's a one-year run, isn't it? Apparently, yeah. Just like another year to year. That is funny. Seems like there's a current theme of the show where they start to do bear hugs and then make them better like instantly. They don't, they don't do long bear hugs so far in the show. Yes. Because you had that with the royal family. Yeah. You get a start of Bear Hug with the beginning of the Vader Hansen match. Yep. Where Vader is showing like sheer power and lifting Hansen over the ropes to the outside and essentially in a bear hug. Yes. Start punching him. And then Ron Simmons teasing a bear hug and then instantly dropping with the spine buster. Yes. So this is the almost the redeeming the bear hug show. It's like they were writing the show for me. Yes. <laughs> Like, someone's getting mad about this. Let, let, let's try and make it better. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this one's going to be a little weird to explain, but it's a good thing. Obviously, on this show, the Freebirds are now the World Tag Team Champions. Mm-hmm. The previous week, 
they were doing TV tapings in advance. They're taping two or three shows out to save money, mm-hmm. which is something WF would do later to save money, and WCW would call them out on it. So I guess things are even. Seven days before this show, they had a match for World Championship Wrestling Television in which the Freebirds lose the tag team titles to the Steiner Brothers. <laughs> so, so they have a negative title reign. They have a negative six-day title reign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the greatest examples of how taping schedules makes really bizarre, messed up stories. Oh my gosh, that's bizarre. Imagine being them. You have to hear these belts, come out and lose them. And then a week later, well, almost a week later, here, win these belts now. And try to act like you're happy, even though you know that you've already lost them. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, officially, they have a one-day title reign, because of the airing, but unofficially, they have a minus six-day title reign. I think it's the worst title reign in history, as far as numbers goes. It can't ask to be. That's hilarious. (laughs) And... Obviously, this is the final show for Doom. They are now broken up. Ron Simmons going his, his way as a single wrestler, which leads to Super Brawl, where they have a big blow-off match in the Thunderdome cage. Nice. <laughs> we get another Super Brawl fanfare. The hard sell for the show would be better if they had, you know, any actual information on it. <laughs> well, there's going to be wrestling on. Does that count? No. Oh, okay. We come back to JR and Dusty, who are with 12-year-old Julian, who won a sweepstakes. JR asks Julian who his favorite team in War Games is. Julian doesn't quite hear the question right, pauses, and says Doom. Ooh. JR pauses awkwardly, given what just happened, and finally says he's not sure Doom will be a team for much longer, but quickly asks the kid if he's having a good time at WrestleWar. Julian says yes, and JR congratulates him and sends him back to his front row seat as they prepare for war games. <laughs> There's probably ways that that segment could have gone worse for WCW, but I can't mm-hmm. think of too many. <laughs> yeah, I think the only time you get one of those that goes worse was this one in WWF where they ask, like, the mayor of the city is hosting the show. <laughs> right. So they wrestler is, and he says Hulk Hogan. Well, after Hogan has left the company, have they been insulting him the whole night? Yeah. Yes. That's got to be the worst one, but that, this is up there, yeah. Yeah. That poor kid. JR and Dusty discuss the horsemen attacking Brian Pillman and also discuss Arn Anderson's injury. We see video footage of the horsemen beating Pillman up, and JR says Pillman will still be in war games but won't be at 100%. Dusty says Larry Zabisco, in to replace Arn Anderson, is an unusual choice, and he doesn't understand it, but he knows Flair's got a reason, and Zabisco is a tremendous competitor. JR says there's been a lot of changes on the teams and wonders how it will affect war games. We cut to the ring, and Tony, whose microphone is far too quiet, says, Let the war games begin! The double-length covered cage lowers from the ceiling with multi-stage pyro and SNES Brave Fantasy Hero setting out from the castle kind of music. (laughs) That's accurate description, yeah. (laughs) The cage almost settles down straight atop the two rings, but gets caught up on the ring post and gets a bit tilted. A bit, yes. The crew go to move it into place as we see a wide shot of the structure, and Tony announces the rules. So the rules for war games are as follows. It's a four versus four match. Both teams start with a single man in the ring for an opening five-minute period. A coin toss decides which team will send another man in first. Victory will not be possible until everyone is in the ring. Two minutes after the first edition, someone from the other team moves in. The teams trade off until everyone is in. 
When all eight men are in, we enter the match beyond. A team can only win if someone on the other team surrenders or submits. There's no pinfalls and no disqualifications. The head referee, Nick Patrick, has final say in the outcome of the match and the timing of the periods. So our tenth match is Larry Zabisco and three of the four horsemen, Barry Windham, Ric Flair, and Sid Vicious with Arn Anderson, versus Brian Pillman, the Steiner Brothers, and Sting in a War Games match. Referees are Nick Patrick, Lee Scott, and Randy Anderson. They're all out there. They're all refs on duty. Yes. <laughs> and this match will use both rings. Yes. All right, so when we last left the Horsemen chronologically, that being Starcade 1990, Flair's confusing long-term plan of pretending to be a magician to beat Sting for the title did not pay off. <laughs> but don't worry, he would randomly win the World Title back at a house show in January. Anticlimactic. Part of the many January, oh Yeah. <laughs> moments from start the start of Starcade. So despite not winning the title earlier and failing to win the tag titles that night in a street fight against Doom, they would rebound off say by winning the world title and also beginning a new member, Sid Vicious, as mentioned earlier. Okay. Unfortunately, Arn would be injured as the note for the show and placed by Larry Zabisco. Zabisco is important over history, especially recent at this point. He is the final AWA world champion. Oh, okay. He uh, was world champion in December of 1990, so very recently from the show. Hmm. And he left over pay issues. Basically, they weren't paying him. <laughs> fair, fair Because enough. they weren't making money. <laughs> so the company folded shortly into 1991. I don't think he actually had the belt anymore. I think he returned the belt, but yeah. He's the last person to ever hold the title for the company. Okay. Now, with the war with the fully strengthened and more dangerous horsemen, obviously staying out to find friends, and thankfully he did so in the form of the current U.S. Tag Champions, the Steiner Brothers, and Brian Pillman. Okay. Pillman then was attacked? Correct, yes. It was about a week before the show. It would okay. be really recent. Okay. What I guess would be the essentially the go-home show for this. Okay. It was very recent, yeah. It's an interesting combination that we've got here with Arn apparently, I guess, having a legit injury. Yeah, Arn's a legit injury, yeah. That's keeping him out of the match, but then they do kind of an injury angle with Pillman. Yes. And it kind of, <laughs> unfortunately, it does make Arn look a little bit bad, doesn't it? That he's like, I'm injured, I'm not going into the match, and Pillman's like, well, I'm injured and I'm definitely going into the match, but it's because one of them is real and the other is not. Right, right. <laughs> you could also say, I think Arn has been in quite a few war games at this point. Yes. You could say maybe Arn knows what this match is. Yeah. And he's like, I'm injured. I shouldn't be in this. Right. And Pillman's... They did you probably post a story that Pillman refused to be replaced. Right. Pillman is brave slash stupid. Correct. And comes in anyway, right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. They presented the idea that he could have been replaced, but he wouldn't let them. Right. And plus, the replacement would have been El Gigante, and I don't want that. Oh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> I mean, I was about to say, I'm not even sure if he can even fit through the door, but obviously he does later. So. Yes. But even that's, that's tenuous, the best, yeah. So just to note, we have two Steiners in this match and two Ricks in this match. Oh, yeah. Technically, I have two Scots in this match, too, but I don't really have to call out Lee Scott at any point, so right, right. not worried about that one. But Rick Flair, I'm going to call Flair. Sure. And the Steiners are going to go by their first names. Okay. <laughs> at least Barry and Brian are two Bs, but not very similar Bs. Yes, yes. We get cool gladiator arena music that brings out the first team of competitors, the Horsemen, and Larry Zabisco with Arn Anderson. 
I didn't really realize just how tall Barry Windham was. Oh, yeah. Until I saw him standing even with Sid. That's true, yeah. I mean, I've always known he's a big guy, but like, I never thought of him that way. Mm hmm. Sure. Flair has a nice gold robe, of course. Zabisco has a blue Z jacket. See, Z Man, that's what you need. <laughs> yes. Sting's group gets more rockin' music, which is actually kind of a shame, as the Gladiator piece was cool. What is not a shame is Sting's Captain Sting America jacket. <laughs> mm hmm. <laughs> Holy crap, that's awesome. He has a full-on American flag jacket with matching face paint complete with stars and blue pants with a red and white striped scorpion. This isn't even Great American Bash. Yes. Sting just felt like dressing like the flag. <laughs> Scott and Rick Steiner are U.S. tag champs, but they don't wear crazy U.S. flag outfits. Come on, guys. Up your game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Sting is throwing down the gauntlet for awesome outfits right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's no surprise that that outfit has, in fact, been saved as an action figure. Oh, I, I'm not surprised at all, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good looking like, action figure, too. Pillman, for his part, has a heavily taped shoulder. Each team discusses who's going to go in first. The horsemen pick Barry Windham, but as Sting turns to the Steiners to discuss who'll go first for his team, Pillman runs around behind him and charges into the cage. Sting calls after him, but to no avail. Pillman and Windham are locked in for the opening five minutes. Pillman charges Wyndham and suffers some strikes to his shoulder, but hits a beautiful flying clothesline and uses the cage for a kick and a head scissors. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Wyndham ducks as he sees a drop kick off the corner coming, so Pillman just waits for him to stand back up and hits it anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wyndham dodges a Pillman splash, but Pillman slugs him in the crotch, as JR reminds us, this is no DQ. Pillman rams Wyndham into the cage and grinds his face against it in front of the horseman, and Wyndham is bleeding. Pillman works Wyndham's head with punches, biting, and jawbreakers that kind of hit the forehead, so headbreakers, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Works. The opening five minutes expire. The horseman won the coin toss, so it's two-on-one as Flair joins the fight. Just for the record, we don't actually see the coin toss. That is true. We do see uh, Sting cursing his luck, though. Yes. As he walks back, and the, and the horseman hurriedly saying, Get in there! Get in there! <laughs> yes. Pillman fights bravely, but Wyndham and Flair overwhelm him and ram his shoulder into the cage multiple times, then work his shoulder with kicks and arm wrenches as we see Sting's team watching, distraught. Two minutes go by, so Sting bursts through the doors to even it up, two to two. Wyndham and Flair go to confront Sting, but he decimates both. Flair tries to go to fight the injured Pillman, but Sting chases him down to continue the beating and gives a Stinger call so loud we can hear it over the cheering crowd. <laughs> Pillman fights Wyndham as Sting fights Flair, managing a Stinger splash despite the low ceiling. Pillman slaps a figure four leg lock on Wyndham, and Sting starts to put a scorpion death lock on Flair, but it's time for the next entry, so Sting lets go to face the approaching Zabisco. The horsemen have the three to two advantage. So you can almost say that Sting lets go in the ring. <laughs> That's true. Sting staggers Zabisco with a hard punch and springs from one ring to the other to cross-body Zabisco in an epic spot. It's a great spot, yeah. Sting fights Zabisco and Flair, but Zabisco finally stuns him with a turnbuckle ram, and Flair goes to break Wyndham out of the figure four, finally. Sting turns the tide, but Wyndham limps over to save Zabisco and hits an awkward face buster. As Zabisco knee-drops Sting, Rick Steiner is in, and it's 3-3. Three to three. Rick nails Wyndham and Flair with Steiner lines and runs wild, hitting a great belly-to-belly -belly suplex to Flair. 
Pillman and Sting fight Zabisco and Wyndham as Rick grinds Flair's face against the cage to get him bleeding. Wyndham rams Sting into the cage too, but Rick counters a Flair attempt to send him into the cage and introduces Flair to it again as we see a worried Arn and Vicious outside. Time's up, so Vicious is in, and the horsemen are up a man again, four versus three. Vicious hits Rick with a double axe handle, then pauses and makes a weird face before holding him for a flare kick. Did Vicious forget a spot there? <laughs> it's possible, yeah. Flair tries running Pillman into the cage and meets it himself instead again. Flair tries again with Rick Steiner, and it goes as well as the other times. Zabisco tries it, and Rick no-sells the cage and punches him, but a punch from Vicious knocks Rick flat. That's kind of a nice way to build up Sid, actually, that he does more damage than a cage ram. Yeah, I can see that. Flair meets the cage again, but punches Sting in the crotch, and the final two-minute period expires, so Scott Steiner charges in. We're four versus four now, and everyone's in, so the match beyond begins. Scott demolishes Flair, Wyndham, and Zabisco with Steiner lines and a double underhook powerbomb. Very cool spot. Mm -hmm. Vicious rams Pillman into the cage and audibly discusses a spot with Rick. (laughs) He does, yes. Rick reverses a vicious whip to send him into a ring-to-ring flying Steiner line from Scott. Awesome. <laughs> Sting gets amazing hang time on a Stinger splash, despite the low ceiling, and hits Flair and locks in a scorpion deathlock as Flair screams for help. Zabisco hears him and kicks Sting to free Flair. Vicious starts working Pillman's shoulder and rips off the support tape, but the faces fight back and lock in figure fours on all four heels. We get an amazing wide shot of that. That's a cool shot for sure, yeah. Wyndham reaches Pillman to rake his eyes and freeze Vicious, and the heels get free, but Sting military presses Flair into the ceiling several times. It's total chaos. Pillman gets Zabisco against the cage and shoves him into it hard with his boot, but Zabisco won't give up and bellows for help. That looked like it hurt a lot. Yes, it did. Sure did look like that, yes. Wyndham and Flair make the save. Possible botch on a Scott DDT on Wyndham, but JR sells it as Wyndham blocking. It was definitely a botch, yeah. (laughs) Vicious calls a spot on camera again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Vicious thrusts Pillman into the cage ceiling as everyone ends up in ring two, except for Pillman and Vicious. Vicious sets up for a (sighs) powerbomb. Here we go. And catches Pillman's feet on top of the cage, so he goes down early and nearly drops Pillman right on his head. Ah. Even knowing that's coming, it is a rough one to watch. Thankfully, Vicious manages to keep his grip there, and Pillman tucks, or it could have been a disaster. Oh, yeah. Vicious carefully hefts Pillman back onto his shoulder and power bombs him a second time much more safely. <laughs> yes. Elegante suddenly charges down to the ring and rips the cage door open, and Vicious goes to join the party in ring two. Elegante checks on Pillman, along with head ref Nick Patrick, and Elegante signals that Pillman is unconscious. As Pillman cannot defend himself, Patrick calls for the bell and awards the match to the horseman. Elegante carries Pillman out of the ring as booze rain down, and Dusty says that Elegante might have saved Pillman's career there. Thoughts on this match? Well, it's by no means the first four games match. It's a great example of how this match can work for the back and forth action. Yes. Yeah, Dusty's brainchild here, because everyone gives him full credit for this thing's creation, is definitely in full effect. You have the faces always working from beneath in different scenarios. One-on-one, then two-on-one, then so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it keeps it fresh. It nicely paced as well. 
face has to work really quickly to sorry, get control back, knowing that there's going to be a third person or fourth person, whatever, coming in immediately after that. They have yes. a two-minute window to do as much damage as possible. So it creates a nice sort of frantic atmosphere for faces. Whereas the heels, in contrast, will just like put a hole in you and want to sit on you the whole time because they want to total control. At least want to wait you out. Mm-hmm. So it really helps define faces and heels very well in these matches, which is nice. The only exception, of course, in this format is Larry Zabisco, who for few occasions is mostly beaten up the entire time. Yeah, poor guy charges in when they get the advantage again, and then is immediately decked by Sting. Yes. <laughs> that was awesome. Which he sells like a masterclass too. Oh, yeah. He stumbles clean across the ring. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I started to feel a little bad for him in this match because every time they, you could see him on frame, he's being beaten up or yeah. slammed or something. Yeah. They saved all the blading for this match, apparently. Oh, good gosh, yes. So much blood. It isn't It isn't anywhere near like Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard, but no. there was a lot of blood in this match. Yeah. They didn't have to label this TVMA, so... Well, yeah, it's not quite, not quite that bad, for sure. The finish is an interesting thing. Not getting into Sid messing it up and nearly killing a guy. Yes. The idea is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, they don't want the horsemen to sort of lose their strong, dominant, stable mystique. So you can't have them lose. That's the mindset they're going with here. At the same time, they don't want to have Sting lose. You really don't want Pilmer or any people to lose. You can maybe get by with one of the Steiners if you can find a way. Mm-hmm. Since they're in a tag team, and, you know, like Flair could be one of them or something, but they should not do that. So this way is a sort of interesting workaround to get there. Yeah, I think... It does work, and I like how it works well with completing Pillman's shoulder injury tale, Mm -hmm. but I kind of feel like I still wanted it to be someone that was actually in the match that surrenders on the behalf of Pillman. Yeah. Like, Sting could do it out of compassion. Like, he sees, oh my gosh, we're all fighting strong, but Pillman is out. Yeah. I can't justify risking his life. Or you can have a ref call on their behalf as well, seeing the knockdown, yeah. Just have Nick Patrick do the call. I think involving Elegante... I know the intent is not that Elegante is actually surrendering on their behalf, really, but it kind of makes it look like it. Yeah. And it just feels a little bit awkward, where I feel like if you'd involved Sting or one of the Steiners spotting what had happened and saying, oh my gosh, we can't put any more risk to this guy that can't defend himself anymore, Mm -hmm. then I I don't think that would have cheapened anything on Sting's part or anything like that. But it would have, for me, connected to the match a little bit more strongly. Yeah, no, I could see, like, you could have the spot go down with Pillman and Vicious. Sting maybe has just started turning Flair over for the Scorpion Deathlock, sees that, and has to begrudgingly let go and run over and stop it. Yeah. Similar to what they did the previous year with Lex Luger, where he lets go of the torture rack to go help Sting. Right, yes. Something like that could definitely work. The compassionate face angle, I yes, think, would exactly. really work well with Sting, and I could see that being a slightly better way to end this to me. I understand them really heavily promoting this El Higante guy, but yeah, him being in the match definitely takes a little away from that. Mm-hmm. But I, I get the idea they're going for with the finish, so I'm not too mad Absolutely, yeah, yeah. For me, it wasn't the best ending because of how they did it, but that only affects the last 30 seconds or so of a near 22-minute match, mm-hmm. the rest of which was raw, unadulterated awesome. For sure, yeah. It was filled with brutal combat and some absolutely wild spots. I loved how they manage the flow here. Each new person utterly changes the feel of the match and swings the momentum. But I like that the swings were not always immediate. Yeah. The teams had to fight together intelligently to gain the advantage. 
The chaos level ramped up impressively as the match went on, but while there were some moments where the cameras didn't quite catch things, and I definitely lost track of some competitors towards the end, yes, I still felt like we got the full story from this match, unlike something like the Bunkhouse Stampede. <laughs> yeah. We got to see a bunch of big moments, and the guys told a complete tale here, so really amazing match. For sure, yeah. I love War Games matches for much the same reason that I love the Royal Rumble. The situation's constantly changing. You're constantly introducing new guys to the match that will develop the match in different ways and bring new and fresh moves to the arrangement. So you get to see new things constantly through the course of the match. It's a match that's impossible to become static. Yes. I really appreciate that. Where I start to kind of like tune out on a match occasionally is when things have become static or they're doing the same move over and over or, or just holding a position for a while. Right. And that basically doesn't ever happen in a War Games match. The closest you get to that is maybe the fact that Sting does go for or lock in the Deathlock a few times in a match. Yeah. But it's also so much going on, it's not a big deal. And I know at least one time they kind of like, he's going to lock it in and then he gets interrupted. Correct, yeah. You do see like the figure four more than once, but you see it in two different ways. You see it as a, okay, Pillman is holding Barry Windham in this for a long time, and the heels have to fight their way to him to uh, free him. Mm -hmm. And then you see it as the four-man figure four, which is amazing. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's so much variety in one of these. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult to do war games badly. Yeah. You have to actually actively try and mess with the match itself to make it bad. Yeah. yeah. The following month, uh, Flair will be quite busy. He have a title versus title match against Tatsumi Fujinami at the New Japan Super Show. Earlier, I talked about how the champion at this point is Vader. And he yes. loses the title of Fujinami in March. Oh, okay. So if that hadn't happened, that match would have been Flair and Vader in 1991. Oh. Yeah. Interesting to think about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Considering how much we loved the 93 match, that's like, yeah. Yeah. Following this, Pillman would thankfully recover. It wasn't too serious an injury, which is good to hear. Yes. He would thankfully not be fighting Sid Vicious at Super Brawl. <laughs> he would instead be fighting Bear Windham, which is a much safer match yes. in general. Yeah, they did a really great opening to this, so I'm down to see that. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, they have a taped fist match, which is sort of their way of leaning into like no DQ stuff, but also being old school. Yeah. They have a weird obsession with like taped fist matches in early mid 90s in WCW. Yeah. It's not bad, but I never quite got it. Uh, in contrast, Sid would wrestle one of the most infamously bad matches of all time at Super Bowl, that being a stretcher match against El Gigante. Oh. Yes. That'll be interesting to talk about when we go to Super Bowl, because it's, yeah. <laughs> the tag title would be defended by the Steiner Brothers, having already having won them from the negative title reign from the Freebirds, <laughs> against the team of Lex Luger and Sting. Ooh. Despite being teamed with them in this show, yeah. Yeah, interesting. As for Laser Biscoe and Arn Anderson, interestingly enough, the pair would become a tag team after Arn recovered, and this sort of storyline played its way out. They become the Enforcers. That's a great name. Yes. <laughs> that would really help fill the tag rank over the next year or so, having two very reliable, solid legends there to carry anyone through a match, no matter how good they were. Yeah, and they're both very good at the, I guess, slightly more legit-looking side of wrestling. For sure, yeah. And doing good selling for people while still looking like tough guys and stuff, so it, mm -hmm. I'll bet that's a great team. <laughs> yeah, look forward to see if we get some of them on the next show, maybe. We'll see. 
We go to JR and Dusty, who are with Nick Patrick. Fans, I know we know this a lot of, it's chaos down here to say the least. I'm not sure how much time we have left on our broadcast. You stopped the match. Yes, I did. I think it was very apparent that uh, Brian Pillman was unconscious. He was unable to speak for himself. And I know these war games are a very, very dangerous type of match. And I'm not going to be responsible for the injury of one of these men that's going to end one of their careers. I'm not going to be responsible for that. Brian Pillman was unconscious. I did stop the match. That's my decision. And I don't regret that decision. All right, Nick Patrick, thanks very much. Dusty, I think it's a call that he had to make at that point in time in the match. I tell you, uh, people have not been in the war games. I've been in the war games. I know the pain, and I know the blues and the agony that's going on now. Brian Pillman put up a tremendous fight. He came in there injured. He went after it. He took it to him. But once he was out, there was no other choice. I don't believe what the big old giant did for his friend, what the referee did. We've seen a tremendous night. Brian Pillman could be seriously injured. This segment did help the ending a bit, I think. Yes. Nick Patrick established his reasoning just fine, and JR and Dusty weighed in as well to build it up. It does feel a little bit like the Starcade 84 post-match interview with Joe Frazier. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. Just put together a lot better. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I still would have liked a different ending to the match, but this helped. Yeah. It is funny to hear Dusty much less upset about this call than about the Starcade 84 call, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he loses a million dollars that night. That so. is that is true. But he's like, one referee calls the match because of a uh, injury and inability to defend yourself, and he's like, I'm gonna find you, hunt you down, and beat you up. Yes. And another one calls it under kind of similar circumstances, and yeah, he's like, no, that was a really good call on the referee's part, and good he job, probably buddy. saved that Thanks. guy's life. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting to think about that. Yeah. I guess he's learned in the intervening years. Maybe he had a nice sit down with a. Uh, Joe Frazier and heard him out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> JR and Dusty talk again about Koloff hitting Luger with the title belt, and JR tries to throw to video of that incident, but the tape isn't ready. Dope. Dusty says he wants to go back and talk to Koloff to try to find out more, and he predicts Koloff's got a whooping coming his way. JR says Koloff claims Luger stole the title from him four years ago, but he doesn't remember any thievery. Dusty says Luger now has to deal with Spivey, Koloff, and every other star coming after that belt. JR says we're out of time, and thanks the fans for attending. She'll Super Brawl once more, and signs off. We get a credit sequence backed by a shot of a cactus, then a wide shot of the ring for some pyro, and then back to the cactus. And Wrestle War 91 is done. So, overall thoughts on Wrestle War 91? It's a solid to decent show overall that's really helped out for me by the last few matches. Mm -hmm. It's one of the shows I think kind of coast by early on. There's nothing bad. Obviously, there's a standout with the Japanese women wrestling match, which is a real surprise for all of us involved. Yes. But otherwise, it was, oh, it's okay. Oh, that's pretty good. Nothing really bad happened, but nothing too impressive. The overall theme until the ending segment seemed to be less about here's a story we're telling, more about here are these guys you should watch for the next you know couple years, or here's these stories they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't feel a whole lot of blow-off or payoff, I would say, in a lot of these matches. Mm-hmm. It's almost coasting to a certain degree, but then the second part of the show, you set so much up with the Spivey match, and then the aftermath with Koloff, that really doesn't go as much as you would think. And obviously, War Games leave a lot open for so many matches that we would get in the future. 
all the variations you can have of the yeah the horseman and stink squadron and of course the doom angle too is that doom as well yeah, that's true yeah I feel the same way on that. I think it's like the first part of the show is very much them saying, hey, these guys are here Mm -hmm. and this is what they can do. And the second part of the show is, hey, here's the stories we're going to tell you with these guys. Yeah. And so the second part works a lot better in that standpoint where they know what they want to do with these people and know how to set it up. And the first part is maybe people that they're not as solid on yet, letting them work out who they are. And then later on, you'll get angles with them, really. Yeah, the first half to two-thirds of the show is like a really strong TV taping, but not necessarily pay-per-view caliber. Mm -hmm. This was a very solid show, like you said. Not exceptional, but very solid. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of good matches with a couple great ones mixed in, and no complete duds. Closest to the dud level maybe was the opening six-man for me, and even that had its moments and seemed to work for the live crowd, which was hot for the entire show. The crowd helps a lot, and it's cool to see them react to the performances tonight, especially during the match with the Japanese women wrestlers, where they start a bit uncertain, but are clearly won over by the performances quickly. Mm -hmm. I've rarely seen that clear of a transition in how the crowd is reacting to a match, and that was really cool. Absolutely, yeah. The promos were hit or miss. We got some good moments in them, but also some things that didn't even relate to the current show, like the Matsuda promo, which I still liked, and the Danger Zone, which I very much did not. Absolutely. Koloff's amazing heel turn on Luger was a terrific standout moment, and Taylor and York had a pretty good segment, but then we got the utterly pointless Missy Hyatt joke segments that went nowhere good. Yeah. I felt like we were seriously missing any promo bits to set up war games, too. The show certainly did build to the match through the way the commentators talked it up, but I really wanted to hear from both teams before the match. Yeah, right? I'm sure they were doing promos all over the place on TV, but it would have been nice to have one on the show. You could have a United team promo on both sides, Yeah, but also set up things, like have Pillman being more anxious and more angry about it than, say, Sting and the Steiners are. Exactly. To foreshadow that bit, yeah. I loved JR and Dusty on commentary. Mm -hmm. Once again, we got a really endearing performance out of Dusty where he just comes off as having fun, but he's able to make some very good points about the matches and tactics as well, as JR held things together with a solid performance. They aren't on their game for every match. In particular, they get rather muddled during the Japanese women's match, Mm -hmm. but they still do a great job of emphasizing the night's themes. I do feel like they're a little more focused on match commentary than on some other Dusty shows where he just goes entirely off into outer space at times. Yes, for sure. That can be good or bad. It makes it easier to understand the matches, which is good, but it does make it a tad less crazy and fun to listen to them. Yeah, he, well, he doesn't have someone like Keenan right. sort of prompt him into the crazy To just, like, too. totally egg him on. Exactly. JR is trying to maintain control. Yes. And Tony will sometimes do that too, but he often just kind of like plays with Dusty as well, more yeah, than I think yeah. JR will. For sure, yeah. This is not WCW's finest hour from a production standpoint. There were definitely some notable missed camera shots, especially in War Games, though they did a reasonable job of showing you just about all the major moments in a very chaotic match there. We had some audio troubles again, and the lights even went out for a match. And then, of course, there's the bizarre faded color camera that they use for some shots. Oh, man. Though I didn't really notice that once we were past the opening few matches. I think they might have. Yeah, they, they, there's one match later in the show, they cut to it for a minute, and you're like, wait, why is that back now? Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, there's JR calling for a replay he just never actually gets towards the end there. <laughs> <laughs> I would know in the production stuff as well, 
the arena they're in can supposedly hold around 14,000 people. It varies oh, a bit yeah. by your staging. They have, what's the attendance again? Like 6,000. I forget exactly. So they're about half the capacity, if you're being roughly generous with them, mm-hmm. which they do not cover well at all. No, you can definitely tell. For all that, the crowd is really loud throughout the show. Though. Oh, yeah. It's a good crowd for what's actually there. Correct. Yeah. Not the worst show we've seen from the production angle, but far from the best. Mm-hmm. Overall, this is a solid, enjoyable show that's bolstered by a few very good matches and moments. It didn't strike me as one to push people to watch in full necessarily, but there's absolutely parts of it that you should see. And if you sit down and watch the whole thing, it's a fine way to spend a few hours. Yeah. It starts slow, but it ends up quite a good show. For sure. All right. Match of the night and MVP, and we'll trade off again. All right. Match of the night has been a little tricky for me. I really lean towards the Japanese Women Buster match, but as I covered, there's not really a story there. Mm-hmm. Same way I leaned a bit towards the Spy v. Luger match, but I do kind of agree with your point about the control aspect of it. It definitely feels a bit too one side and then kind of stops. Yeah. So I think, especially given its importance and how much fun we got out of it, I would say match tonight got to be the War Games match. Yeah. Um, my match of the night is not going to surprise you at all. All right. <laughs> that is War Games. Yes. <laughs> but I will say, I came into this convinced that I would easily choose War Games. Mm-hmm. And I did choose it, but it was not easy. No, absolutely. Yeah. The A and Honda versus Kitamira and Yamazaki match was incredible. It was. If it had an emotional storyline to go along with the amazing action, it might have edged War Games out. Yeah, it's definitely a Dark Horse pick, like I said. Yeah. On. Yeah. yeah. As it was, War Games combined great action, a cool match concept, and a very good storyline, and that gives it the win. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love War Games matches, so I was not expecting it to be anywhere near as close as it was. Yeah. I actually had to do a rewatch to decide it. There you go. And that should tell you how good A and Honda versus Kitamira and Yamazaki is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, MVP, Al? That was a tricky one for me, because there's so many people involved in War Games, and mm-hmm. so many people that have strong showings throughout the night. I think Sting really stands out on mm-hmm. um, the build-up. Spivey surprised me a lot by standing out with his offense. Yeah, it was very good. Luger, again, being a strong base in parallel with someone other than Flair really impressed me. Taking some of those, those bombs he took really was really good. Mm-hmm. And obviously, all four women in the Japanese women wrestling match were good. Of them, probably be between Miss A and Yamazaki, I would say. They didn't have the biggest spot, for sure. Yeah, those were the two I liked the most, too. Taking another away from the other two, obviously. Mm-hmm. I think, technically for the show and its performance, and this is other reason I'll get to as well, I probably have to go... It might surprise you, actually. I'm probably going to go with Brian Pillman. <laughs> because, honestly, so he's given his handicap if he's got to work a match hurt. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's legit. But he has to work like he's hurt. And he works very strongly. He really sells his anger and his emotions and everything involved. And, obviously, the fact that he survived <laughs> yes. that first power bomb, And, to his credit... He does actually, you can see him trying to talk to um, Elegante and the ref. Uh, even, even though the ref says he wasn't speaking, he clearly was. Yes. So, him taking that and managed to power through, like Austin famously powering through his match with his neck broken. I think a lot of credit to him. But yeah, I was leading to a lot of people. When I think about it, no, Pillman was a good pick on this show. Do you know why I laughed? Why? Because my MVP is Brian Pillman. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> 
all the guys in war games uh, like it, it's amazing to me we ended up on the same one and for pretty similar reasons mm-hmm. there's a lot of really good performances tonight but pillman's in war games for the whole thing pulls off some amazing spots and provides the biggest chunk of the emotion for that match with his injured shoulder angle it's genuinely crushing to see him finally go down after fighting so hard, yes. paying the price for his eagerness and bravery. Mm-hmm. I might complain about the specifics of that ending, but the overall concept is sound. He has a great performance, and they use him very well for the match storyline. Yeah, I, I think I agree with saying if they had had a pre-match promo for the team, and Sting could have had a big strong point there, he might have been a, a Dap Pillman, yeah. but that didn't happen so in this or case. Or if they yeah. did the thing with him being the guy that compassionately yes. mm-hmm. surrendered for them or something. But Pillman's just, he's the emotion of that match. Yeah. And that's just such a terrific match. I think he deserves a lot of credit for how it pulls you in. Absolutely, yeah. And that wraps up our review of WrestleMore 91. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details and share your own thoughts about the WrestleWars as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Join us next time for WrestleWar 92, War Games, Destroy or Be Destroyed. Dun, dun, dun. 1992 was basically 1991 all over again for WCW, I guess, with two Battle Bowl Starcades and two War Games Russell Wars. <laughs> That's true. I have significantly less complaints about repeated War Games than repeated Battle Bowls, though. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. We haven't had power edge, obviously, because I'm still talking to you, but oh. our lights like fade for a second, they go back on. So I'm just, if something happens, that's so you know. All right. Okay. All right. It's weird. It's like it, it's like it like, flickers for a second, but I haven't lost anything fully yet. I'm it's just, just, it's just doing his dedication to Russell War uh, and the, the Young Pistols match. There you go. <laughs>